Hey everybody, welcome back to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. Scott, I'm dying to get this show started. Well, Matt, lucky for you, after our death break, the show is back to life, though not quite the same. Yeah, it's like something's missing. Taylor is evil. Ah, there it is. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of heroic hugs, impermanent death and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we're back from our week off, and we're covering the first four chapters of Arc 15 Dying. That is 15.a all the way through 15.3. First, we get an arc-starting interlude where we hop between some wonderful side characters as they all interact with our breakthrough team. And then the attack on Teacher begins, and all that action you've been missing for the last two arcs, well, it's here with a vengeance. Matt? What did you think of these four chapters? Yeah, basically, like you just said, um, very interesting and unusual way to begin an arc, right? We, we mm-hmm. start with an interlude, which almost never happens. And then we have almost like like solid action for the first three chapters with the the, the setup is actually kind of interleaved in this non-standard way. Um, mm-hmm. So so st- structure aside, obviously, they're, they're great chapters. It's great action. There's um, just tons of crazy power shit going on which is which is always fun of course but there's also a lot of character stuff um that that is absolutely delicious to me we're gonna spend most of the time talking about the character stuff actually despite the fact that these are action-packed chapters i think that there's a huge amount of character uh detail that's happening for us to talk about i agree and you know i've always said and will always say that i like the character stuff more than the action stuff that uh will always be true for me but i was surprised at how much i enjoyed you know, just the, the, the actual action here, like just, just wild, but doing one of the things he's really good at, which is coming up with creative new capes and, and throwing those capes into a battle against each other and just seeing what they do. Um, it's fun. It's fun. Not my favorite part of the book, but always enjoyable. Right. Yeah. I definitely felt a high degree of tension during some of these bits, uh, sure. which obviously is the goal. Yeah. All right. So let's start into it. Uh, we got it. chapter 15 dot a, so, uh, you know, getting into this this week, we've seen four chapters, right? Uh, we can be a bit more firm about where exactly uh, this arc is going, what we're being primed for by this first chapter. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, like we just said a second ago, interlude, opening up the arc. This has mm-hmm. only ever happened before in Heavens, you know, aside from arcs where the whole, you know, <laughs> aside from interlude arcs, this has only ever happened in Heavens. And, and in Heavens... Uh, in retrospect, the the reason why that happened was that that whole arc was kind of structured around this idea of the structure of things is broken. Everything is, is out of order. Yeah. Um, so what does it mean here, right? Like it, it's not only is the interlude at the beginning, but the action is at the beginning. Usually the action is not at the beginning, right? So definitely a structurally unusual arc so far. Yeah, and I, I don't. I definitely don't think it me- it's the meaning the same thing here, right? Mm-hmm. I think it is absolutely something different. And I think we're far enough along into the book now 
what are we almost a million and a half words where i think it's safe to declare that the the chapter interlude arc structure that wild bow used in worm um and and in his other two stories as well um is far less rigid in this story right um he's experimented with different structural things with how to do this thing um he's kind of played around with it a little bit and and yeah here in the in the fourth book we're seeing some more experimentation um I think if I think if you look at this arc and if you say, OK, put this arc in war in Worm, the book that Worm was with the structural rules that Worm followed. I think you probably would have seen this arc at the end of of or this chapter at the end of last arc. I think I think that would be something that would have happened. But it's not here. It's it's, it's starting off the chapter. Um, and you, you can kind of like you can look at the events of this interlude chapter as kind of a coda on the whole Shin experience. Right. A little bit like they're they're leaving there. It's kind of showing how everyone's doing it at, after it, but it's doing a whole lot more than that. And I think that's why it is placed here, not at the end of that last arc. Definitely. There's a lot of stuff in here that uh, you can pull out and say, OK, this is specifically setting up this stuff that we see happening in the subsequent three chapters. Right. And, and it doesn't really connect all that well to what the theme of. Uh, breaking was yeah i mean it, you're, you're absolutely right it connects literally because it's all our characters are now leaving the prison and they're mm-hmm. meeting up with all their loved ones but yeah thematically it is very different from everything we were covering that chapter and i think so if you're a writer you look at that and say okay this is the events leading after it's it's setting up the next arc i don't normally do interludes there but uh, i really don't want this in the last arc i really want this here yeah and so why not why not right. do it and, um, I mean, and that, that's what I think happened here. And I think it means a lot like like the very first thing I'm going to point out is, is that we start out with Crystal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you're when you just read this first chapter, you're, you're like, OK, you start out with Crystal. Fine, whatever. But in context of what happens later in, in this arc, you're like, oh, yeah, Crystal's probably going to be pretty important to this arc right. in general. Yeah. Um, maybe even more important than Victoria is. We don't know yet, but. Uh, it's it seems possible, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, we start out with Crystal, who is waiting uh, along with assorted friends and family of our heroes for the prisoners to return to Gimel. Yeah, and I, the first line of this arc is Crystal asking the question, "Where are you, Victoria?" And of course, I hear this, and I my brain immediately starts turning, and I'm like, "This is like this could be like a." Just like a general thematic question of the arc, right? Where are you, Victoria? Not physically, not literally. Where are you at? But mentally, emotionally, where are you at? How are you? What's going on? And, I mean, we'll see in in the interaction that they have. Uh, not great. And, and that is a theme that I think continues through the story very well, that Victoria is, is putting on a good face. Um, we see that face get put on. But um, is, is really kind of out of sorts through a lot of a lot of this action, really. That's true. Speaking of putting on faces, as we're following Crystal in this first bit, she is struggling to keep up her outward composure as more yeah. and more time passes. She, she has this false, this facade, this this false composure that she's projecting um, for all the you know civilians, for all the other Cape families nearby, and obviously you know like like we're saying, this false composure idea is going to be a theme. Uh, just just the idea of appearances is going to be a theme in these chapters. Yeah, uh, these chapters and especially this one chapter, one of the things I really like about 
the, the structure of this chapter is we have all these characters and we'll get into this specifically when we get there, but we have all these characters that are like looking around at everyone else. Crystal is, is looking around and seeing other families, seeing other people waiting for their capes. And then later we're going to see people interacting with each other and we see these things and we're like, Oh, these like, look, it's like, Oh, it's Vista with her family and, and Capricorns with his family and, and, and brains with Aaron and look, Oh, that's so warm and fuzzy. But then we hop into those point of views and we realize how much of that is just exterior, how much of that is just how good it looks, where the in actuality, the truth is a lot, lot worse. Um, so I yeah. think you're right that that is a through line throughout this chapter and probably the arc as a whole. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting because the, the idea of communication has definitely been a major theme in the story. But here it's not really communication, right? It's 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 actually more like this this elaborate web of deception yeah maybe it's a little bit cynical but it does I, I think i might even be able to support that if if we if we get further into this sure yeah i i do like in this moment like she the the, the always consummate professional crystal is like talking about uh she's not sure if she's here in a professional or a personal capacity mm -hmm. but she's gonna put on a face for both right for the the professional capacity she like stands close to the shin guards like not too close to make them threatening but like close enough to be like i am here don't don't fuck with us mm -hmm. um and then in her personal capacity she's like reaching out and talking to all these people people are coming up to her asking questions uh the uh, the veras come up to her and ask her questions and she's talking to people and, and i just love that she both divides these personal and professional capacity these things she's she's nervous she's a wreck um and, and we know generally that crystal is not doing well just in general right like like we had to go way back at the beginning of the story but uh, the broken trigger really messed her up or or at least activated a, a portion of her that was already messed up and we haven't seen much of her since then but there's there's nothing in the story that indicates that she's doing great and in fact in in this early part of the chapter we show just by looking at someone else's family how much that kind of reacts in her and in the loss of her family so mm -hmm. yeah she's not doing great either yeah yeah and and chapters reminding us of this definitely She's also keeping an eye on the heartbroken siblings uh, and we're, you know, being reminded of them, what their whole deal is. <laughs> yeah. And and of course, she, she's kind of reading them as all being off and a bit disconcerting to be around each in their own way. She mm -hmm. also, like you said, notices Capricorn's parents and, and then she thinks about her own parents who are who are dead, which maybe one of the first times that we explicitly think like, oh, OK, OK, interesting. We're we're hearkening back to the dead. Right. Yeah. And and some some dead specifically for reasons that will become apparent in a couple chapters. Uh, I really I really like this. And I think what Wildbo is kind of doing here structurally is actually really clever. Like we said, this entire chapter is serving to kind of set up themes and events for the arc as a whole. And, and because we've read three chapters beyond this one now, we can kind of see that very clearly. But I also think what this chapter what this section of this chapter is doing is setting up the other sections of this chapter because here she kind of scans through all the other people she sees Aaron she sees uh the heartbroken she sees uh the Veras and she literally in the order that they appear in this interlude Crystal observes them so she sees Aaron first then she talks about the heartbroken then she talks about Mr. and Mrs. Vera um and and I think the last one is uh is number man right that's the only one that kind of breaks the mold for for obvious reasons but mm -hmm. i think this is actually really clever because this is this this point of view hopping 
interlude is not something that happens very often in this this book, right? It does happen. It has happened before, probably will happen again, but it's not very often. And I think having Crystal kind of lay out the structure of the interlude through her observations just like helps smooth the transition a little bit. Like you're not as disoriented when we hop to Aaron in a moment. We know where Aaron is. She's here. She's at this event. Um, she's going to be meeting with Rain after everything happened. We know this. It's understood. And it just smooths that transition over a little bit. And I think the same thing is true for the other characters as well. Yeah, that's a good point. It, this is a, a, a unique, um, a, a unique one of these interludes in the sense that it's not it's not a it's not a bunch of different vignettes. It's a bunch of different characters reacting to the same event, which is yeah. breakthrough coming home. Right. So, yeah. And 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 like I said, the, the number boy, number four is the only one that kind of breaks this mold. And I, and again, I think structurally that's intentional. Like yeah. we want a smooth transition between these other ones. The number man portion of this is abrupt and different and weird. And it's because it is abrupt and different and weird. Right. It's not really, it's not really about welcoming anyone back either. Although you could, it, it is, it is connected to Sveta in a weird way, but it's kind of a backwards, bizarro way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and one of the things we, speaking of crystal specifically, we kind of get have the text show us how how observant she is. Like we, we've talked about, she looks at the heartbroken and kind of breaks them down in a way in which um, in a way in which we we like say like, oh, yeah, she's right, because we know these characters, right? We, the reader, know these characters and we have Crystal break them down in a way we're like, oh, yeah. You're right. Like, that's a really good read on these characters. Same thing with Aaron. Like, she she notices Aaron and, and sees Lachlan there, and she's like, ooh, Rain's not going to like that. That's, again, like, Crystal, this this kind of side character who hasn't been in the book very much is very observant and aware of what's going on with everyone else. Um, and we'll see that with her her knowledge of Vista's parents at the same time. So Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see how kind of tuned in she is um, to, to, what's, to what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, we'll probably have an opportunity to talk about this later, but the story really has, um, put, put Crystal in a very interesting position narratively. Like she's been throughout this whole story. She's been an important background character, not in an obtrusive way, but in a very constant, constant background way. Right. She, she was there in Valkyrie's interlude talking to Valkyrie, which now we understand kind of maybe why that was set up there. Yeah. Oh, she, yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> right. Like she she specifically said she was uncomfortable with Valkyrie's whole whole shit. Um, a bunch of, you know, obviously she's appeared in the story many, many times. So anyway, it's just yeah. it's interesting that I feel like that was all like in retrospect, it seems like it was all setting something up at the time. It just seemed like very organic okay, yeah, this, this is, this is a uh, Victoria's cousin. Of course she'd be around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more fun fact here before we move on, uh, Crystal sees Mrs. Vera talking to a Cape named tribute. And this is a little, a little throwback to earlier in the book. Tribute is, was a member of reach along with Capricorn. Um, he's also the guy in Glowworm that when Tristan logged into the chat server, he said, fuck me. Uh-huh. So that's a little fun thing. And a little, like, if you remember those things, you see Mrs. Vera talking to him. Um, you kind of get a, a, a little sneak preview for how Mrs. Vera thinks about her son. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And I, you, you're going to have to like cut a, corner off of my knowing things card because i feel like i should have i should have just picked that up instantly right that's not a it's not even an incredibly deep pull but no i, I totally missed uh who tribute was but yeah it was, that, it was a awesome. long time ago Matt. it's okay <laughs> it's so long ago that's why we do the show yeah 
it's true. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> why we do the show. Um, we also we so we get to see Vista meet her shitty ass parents. Man, fuck these people! Holy shit! I know, right? I mean, like the thing about this is it's not like we knew Vista's parents were shitty. We've known this for a while, but I don't think it's the book has ever like broken it down in, at the in the level of detail it had done yeah. in until this point. And yeah, J- Jesus, um, right? Yeah, I, I, I went from I went from like oh yeah, that's unfortunate to like oh my god, yeah, it was great. Yeah. And uh, like we've talked about parents so much throughout the story because so much of the story hinges on relationships with your family, relationships with your parents. And this is another example of a really fucked relationship that a cape has with their parents. And and the thing that really struck me about this, and I, I might be reaching for this comparison, but these beats mirror Kenzie's a little bit, like specifically like Crystal uh, Crystal's watching as Vista meets her parents and she puts her hand out refusing a hug. Right. Um, she says not while I'm in costume because that's a lie. It's just easier to deal with things this way. And so we have Kenzie who like is a person who denies herself hugs because it, she'll know it will lead to bad things as part of her rules. Vista's denying herself hugs for a different reason, but a similar one. Right. Um, and I, I, that really jumped out at me. Yeah, I want to draw attention to the to the writing in this in this quote that you pull out actually because it says Crystal knew the line Vista was giving to her parents as she had put a hand out refusing the hug not while I'm in costume because it was easier to go without. So it's cool cuz none of that is actually in quotes. It's it's yeah. it's this cool way of conveying the information where Crystal Crystal's watching from too far away to actually hear. So she's just kind of like dubbing her interpretation onto what's happening. But I really yeah. think we can just trust her interpretation here. I think so, too. And I think, again, the the text is doing work to establish her bona fides as mm-hmm. an observant, knowledgeable person to everyone else around here. It's done that. So then when we hear something like this. We're like, yeah, I believe you. I believe that that is exactly what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And this thinking about the hugs and the difference between uh, Crystal's non-hug with her family or sorry Vista's non-hug with her family and Kenzie's rules about hugs and what we're going to see through Kenzie in the interlude it made me realize that hugs are a recurring motif in this chapter each and every one of our characters um, especially our point of view characters is going to be involved in a hug in some way and it's a really clever device where you kind of see the issues manifested in the hug um, and that's something I want to make sure we point out as we go through each and every one of these point of, points of view, because it's really once you get into it, it's really fascinating. I like it a lot. I agree. And speaking of which, Victoria finally comes out of the building and uh, uh, Crystal gives her a hug. And then uh, Victoria just kind of goes catatonic for like 45 seconds. Uh, yeah, we'll get to the hug in a bit. But I, I there's so much to love about this interaction. Because um, yeah. the first thing we see is there's no Mark. Mark's not there. And, and Crystal like immediately goes to the absolute worst and that right. um, I, she's a person that's, I think, very used to family members dying at this point. So if one of her family members is missing, oh, they're dead. Um, and she's like devastated. Uh, but we find out that he uh, has to or chose to. It's unclear. Stay behind to watch over Amy. Carol says like a prisoner, but he'll be OK. Like it's very up in the air. And and the thing that really stuck in my mind, that this is the last time we heard Mark talk. He was defending Amy still, even after everything that's happened, um, everything that that made carol change her mind mark still seemed to be on team amy so interesting stuff yeah yeah and and like you said the fact that she immediately goes to the oh, oh he's dead place is yeah. it's like yeah this is this is crystal's reality right she's right it's much more it's much more uh immediate for her 
Yeah. And, and so, and then Crystal sees Victoria's hand bandaged here and she thinks to herself, she was doing such a terrible job of managing her force field these days in a way that made Crystal worry. And this, uh, this got me thinking, does Crystal know about the wretch? Because like, I don't think so either, but I like, I, I, I know she didn't tell her specifically. Right. But I guess it. I, I just kind of made the assumption and maybe this was an improper thing to do, but I, I made the assumption that like the moment where like she accidentally like crushed her mom with the wretch, like it would have maybe gotten out to a little more people, especially family members. But I guess not. I guess to me, this is indi- indicating that, no, she does not know about the wretch. Yeah, I, I guess um, it's plausible. It, it seems to me that this line is here almost specifically to make us realize that she probably doesn't know because yeah yeah that's just not the sentence that i would expect crystal to use if if it was like she has an uncontrollable monster of of a force field now of course she's doing a bad job controlling it like you know so yeah 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 and so now we get back to that hug and and this entire conversation this entire interaction is happening while they're still hugging while victoria is still just in this hug Mm -hmm. and then suddenly she stops and says, Vic, she rubbed Victoria's back with her hand. And I love this line. I love this writing. No change in the tightness of the hug. No change in the breathing. Barely a movement. You said catatonic and you're basically right. She is she is she's just kind of completely conked out here. And I love this because this is an opportunity to see Victoria from an angle we don't normally see. I don't think we ever would have gotten the full extent of this detail from Victoria's own point of view, right? Like no. we needed to be in someone else's head to see this. It would have been, it would have been, she, she's like deep, deep in Victoria rumination land. She, she, she takes the hug and then like 17 paragraphs of rumination. And then like, she disengages from the hug and then she comports herself and yeah, none of it would have, it, it wouldn't have been conveyed like that. The fact that Crystal is like staring at her and, and completely aware of how messed up she is. Yeah. 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 I mean, especially like I think Victoria, I think sometimes Victoria feels like she zones out, but people don't like catch wise to it. Right. Like she thinks mm-hmm. like she's, she thinks she's giving off that good face and then people aren't noticing, but uh, no, n- not the people that know you, Victoria. Yeah, and speaking of the people that know her, um, uh, I didn't catch how crappy Carol is being in this moment. <laughs> um, so, so Crystal thinks Aunt Carol didn't have anything to offer. Her head turned to look at the others, and Crystal had no idea if that was on purpose or by happenstance. Yeah, it's this really sad moment where, like, Victoria's catatonic. Uh, Crystal looks at Carol for help, like an explanation, guidance, like explain, help me. Get, let, let me know what's going on. What's wrong with her? Uh, and Carol's just got, she's got nothing. She's got absolutely nothing. Yeah. And like, I, I mean, I, I, I want to be with you in Carol crappy mode here, but part of me is like, how would, how, like Carol is fucked too, right? Like she's well, going yeah. through some shit herself. I, I, in, in my, my take here was that Carol is basically in, in, in her head, the, the narrative she's telling herself is I'm giving Victoria her space to collect herself. Sure, which is yeah. sort of ver- which is sort of like um, reinforced by the fact that Victoria then pulls herself together, mm-hmm. um, you know, buries that trauma deep uh, <laughs> the, the way the Hooray. way Carol taught her. Yeah. And and then Carol looks at her with pride and you realize, like, why things are the way they are, you yeah. know. Now, to, to, to be fair, so we're not accused of being unfair to characters. Um Carol does not look at her with pride. Um, 
Crystal sees Carol and says, I'm guessing that this is what Carol's thinking right now. Mm -hmm. And the text says that Aunt Carol didn't remark on anything, didn't seem to do anything, but that Crystal could imagine that she felt pride in that moment, which, I mean, this whole section has like basically been a testing ground for crystal is super observant and really understands people and really gets people. So I, 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 I agree with you. I agree mm-hmm. with you that this read is probably accurate to what Carol is thinking based on what we know about Carol and based on the skill that has been established for crystal as a person that understands people rather well and reads them rather well. I agree with you, but let's just say she did not actually like in any kind of visible way show that emotion that, that crystal is prescribing to her. Uh, you're right you're right you know <laughs> just, ra- just gotta be fair just random thought before i forget um we we strongly suspect that carol is not participating in, in this attack right because she's like brain damaged yeah yeah okay, she's okay. Not, yeah she's not i don't i absolutely i don't think yeah, she's there okay. yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. i i do i do really i want to focus on this this these moments where victoria puts herself back together, right? These moments like the the writing here is so good by Herculean measure over a span of a second or two, a rapid fire set of tiny step-by-steps, Victoria adjusted posture, body language, and reasserted focus, then eye contact to reassert the facade Victoria of last week instead of a more, if a more tired one. And it's just like, it's a little heartbreaking, right? Because I mean, like it's, it's awful seeing the zoned out, almost comatose Victoria, who is not dealing with this stuff. But it makes me even more sad to see that same person just go, okay, time to assume this identity. And I'm, I'm here now. Like even later it says posture, body language, footing, a hand going to the hair, a movement of the chin, like someone getting ready to have their photo taken. But this presentation was something taught with the idea it would be worn at all times if possible. And it's just so heartbreaking. And, and this is absolutely speaking of unfair to Carol, this is absolute some, absolutely something that was drilled into her from childhood that to mm-hmm. uh, the second she was a Cape, you have to be this person. This is the person you have to show. It doesn't matter what's going on inside your head. It doesn't matter what you're going through. This is what you have to do. And she says it herself, I have to, I need to. And she's talking about acting. She's talking about going into the battle. She's talking about fighting, but this is part of it. Putting on this mask, assuming this identity, assuming the identity of a person who needs to be ready for a photo moment at any any second right. and it's so heartbreaking right and it's really fascinating how it's like interlocked with her more recent trauma of the, the you know being turned into the wretch and spending yeah. time in the hospital and everything because like her, her original trauma that was her trigger event had nothing to do with any of that obviously it was mm-hmm. it was basically this parental pressure and feeling like she doesn't belong and then bam now you're a cape. Now you can belong. And now your mom is going to treat you like, um, you know, basically, I forget the name for it, but the the the, the pageant girls, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which I mean, I'm sure there's a healthy way to do that, but I don't know if I've ever seen it. Um, <laughs> and and so now all of those, all of those, let let's say, cope like like not so great coping mechanisms that she learned to deal with her with her relationship with her mom and her family are making her current issues worse. It's yeah. really, it's really complex and interesting. And, and I love that. And it's interesting because it's crystal. Who's kind of showing us this Victoria never really sees it this way. Yeah. She yeah. sees all of this as, as like good and necessary. 
yeah, I, I, again, that that is one of the things that this point of view thing gives us such a great window into that. Yeah, I mean, there is no part of Crystal that sees this the way Carol does and sees this the way Victoria probably does, which is this is good. What I'm doing here is good. I am I am doing what is necessary, what what I need to do to get through my day. Um, and Crystal sees it as what it is, which is sad and like troublesome and worrying mm-hmm. and and uh, kind of heart destroying. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I love that Crystal is able to give us that perspective. Me too. But then we skip over to Aaron. Um, and I think we gain a little bit of insight into who Aaron is here that we didn't have before. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a bit disappointing if you're a stan for Irene because <laughs> um, she seems pretty confused about like who she's actually into and what she actually wants. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't help that she, she kind of thinks to herself, she's, she's just, she's kind of just a very touchy feely person. So can't necessarily read a a ton into her affectionate gestures toward rain. Yeah. I'm thinking back to the moments earlier in the story where she would like touch him and we, and and you and I were like, ah, no, but yes, it doesn't always mean what we think it It, means. It doesn't, but it doesn't not mean anything either, I think. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, and and this is the moment where the hug of this section comes into play right here at the very beginning, because it says here, impulsively, she stepped forward and gave Rang a hug with the layers he wore and the layers she wore. It was more of a squish of outer clothing than bodily contact. And the poor guy looked like he needed a hug. His answer to the hug was delayed as she, he had to pluck his arms out of his pockets first, figure out what he was doing, and then put his arms around her just at the point she was breaking contact. So what I love about this is the hug, the symbol of, of the event in this group for Victoria. It was this, this kind of comatose, empty, like blank frozen hug here. It's this awkward, like super awkward, mistimed, miscued kind of thing where they just aren't syncing up. She gives him a hug and he's like super late. It's like, you know, how sometimes you shake someone's hand. I don't know. I have big hands. So when I shake someone's hand, sometimes they grip too early uh-huh. and then they're like Grab gripping like, and it's like the worst, most awkward thing in the world. Yeah. It's kind of the hug version of that. Right. Um, You're like, and, man, I, I'm glad I'm never going to see this person again. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I think it's just like a perfect depiction of kind of the mistimed, awkward of their relationship right uh they're kind of out of sync with each other a little bit yeah perfect yeah i agree completely it's it's not it's probably not what rain wanted out of a hug it's <laughs> it's not um like he, he probably doesn't feel super comforted by it right i mean yeah. it's, it's not nothing right it, it maybe feels a little bit better than no hug would have yeah um but yeah it, it's an expression of of what's going on between them right it's a it's a disconnect it's yeah. a it's a lack of, of proper communication, right? Yep. So um, she's kind of stuck in the like aftermath of being forced to be okay with marrying him back in the Fallen Camp. And this stuckness, it, which is what she describes as a no-deal feeling, I think is how a lot of our characters end up moving through life. They just kind of say, I can't, I don't know what to do with this feeling so I'm just going to it's just going to be there and I'm just going to try to not think about it and yeah. and ignore it and get past it. But like the thing is, she she kind she likes rain, right? She likes rain, but she also can't do anything about that feeling. Yeah, I think it's this wonderfully complex thing that, that the book has constructed here. It, it Like she looks and sees rain as this this person who deals like his out of all his qualities, his most admirable quality is the, the person that can deal. Bad stuff happens to him. He gets beat up. He gets brainwashed and he deals with it. He he approaches it. He he does something about it. And she can't do that. 
that's not that's what she says. Like she does not have an ability to do that. She does not deal. Um, and, and I like like I love this idea of dealing and not dealing as like just kind of a new angle on these ideas of recovery and change we've been talking about throughout this whole book. It's just like a new way to look at it. Right. Because dealing in Aaron's definition of it is an active thing. It's it's a choice. It's active. You are going out there. She says that Rain is going out there and he's 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 getting stuff done. He's doing things. He's fighting against bad people. He's trying to be better. He's actively making choices to do stuff whereas no dealing is completely passive. It's just it's 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 static. Nothing ha- nothing is happening and she's stuck there. And like yeah, like as you said, there's there's a lot of characters through this book that I think are no dealing. I think Amy is no dealing. I think Carol is no dealing. These are characters who are just kind of stuck and they might not describe it that same way, but it's the, uh, just a new perspective on this the stuckness, this no change, this this crispness of of a lot of our characters. Yeah, I love um I love it as kind of a, ling- a little bit of a linguistic reframing cuz like her the way she says like he deals it's a verb it it turns the it turns it into an active thing and failing to do it is basically like well you're 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 obviously not you're obviously not ever gonna how would you ever get better you're not dealing it's just gonna sit there what else would it do right yeah Um, and and i like it a lot because like if someone were to ask me how i'm doing with something and if my response is i'm dealing (laughs) to me that's a passive response to Mm -hmm. me i'm just saying it's like uh, you know, I'm just, just, I'm just trying to deal with it, you know. Um, but Aaron's definition of this seems to be a lot more active. It's not just kind of, you know, just, eh, just dealing with it. It's, it's, it's more than that, and I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know how deep to get into it, but, but like, deals is one of those words that's kind of a colloquialism, right? It, it's, it, it just kind of means like, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm sorting it out, right? It's right. kind of a yeah. it's kind of one of those vague words where you don't even really think about what it means. Right. But yeah. like like it literally means like you're you're coming to grips with and finding a, a new accommodation with a thing, right? Like the right. word deal means a, a a mutual accommodation, right? Like you have this new issue in your life, you have to find a new accommodation with it, you have to find a deal with it, right? I, I know I'm kind of overinterpreting here, but it I, I think that there's something to it, maybe. Yeah, it's like when Howie, Howie Mandel offers you like a suitcase full of money mm-hmm. and you got to say deal or no mm-hmm. deal. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I meant when I said all that stuff just now. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's another, another level to what's going on with the Rain Aaron stuff, which is that uh, I, I think and I think the text is pretty explicit that this is the case. I think that she does stuff like bringing Lachlan along in order to get a reaction out of Rain to prompt him to make some kind of move. And then maybe something could happen and she kind of wants something to happen, but she's not going to make the move. She's still stuck. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think, you know, I'm I like I don't think the E-Rain coffin has its final nail in it, but um, yet because I, I, I agree with you there. I think there is some there is on a level that she can't deal with. Um, Aaron does like him in some way and she just has no idea what to do with that so it just like her no dealing is very passive she's kind of like passively teeing up the the chance for him to do something about it right like look he's here do something like yeah i'm I want to make you jealous and see what you do i think she specifically says like she looks at him and she says to his credit he makes no visible like sign of jealousy or shock that he or, or annoyance that he's here but she kind of wants him to right. she kind of want like she's kind of poking and prodding at him and she feels a little bad about that she feels i think she says it's kind of shitty that i'm doing this yeah. but like but she doesn't know what else to do 
She's just right. completely stuck. Yeah, that's what I mean by explicit. The text basically says, like, uh, he, he deserves better than me poking and prodding him like this. And it's yeah. like, yeah, she knows what she's doing. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Because, yeah, I mean, the, the issue with this plan is that Rain, while he is a very active person that is actively trying to make himself better when it comes to uh, making a move, uh, he is not a very active person. So, like right. this idea of I'm just going to keep putting this other guy in front of him testing to see how he's going to react and testing to see what he's going to do. Rain's not the type of guy no. that's just going to like go for it, right? No, because his reaction is going to be, well, yeah, I, guess I guess she she's doesn't like me. So Lachlan and his, right. I'm using my ear, your voice. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, uh, there's this moment though, where, uh, she, rain is telling her to be careful around the heartbroken and Aaron's response is chastity has my back. <laughs> And Rain's just like, yeah, she's a good one. And you're just thinking back to that beautiful conversation earlier in, uh-huh. in the story. <laughs> I love uh, it so much. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's so good. I, I, I like that the book has the confidence to just p- drop this in here. And it doesn't like we're in we're in Aaron's point of view. So we can't possibly know. We can't possibly have a reminder of the earlier scene. Right. But it trusts that we remember that scene for this to kind of land the way that it does. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so it is cool to see that Lachlan is actually dealing though. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 this really, it's really great. Like he's this guy who is his instinct tells him to hate rain and to be this guy he was programmed to be, but he's actively working past the instinct. He's actively thinking past it a little bit, uh, under Aaron's definition, that is absolutely dealing. It's hard and his feelings are confused, but he's doing something about it or she is not doing anything about it. Right. Or unable to do something. I love the way it's written where it's like he takes a, just a fraction of a second too long to respond and then he nods just a few times too many right. after he does respond. It's like, right. yeah, but but that's how you kind of rewire that pathway, right? That's absolutely yeah. positive. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, here's the question I have for you exiting this this Aaron section, which I really liked. Do, do you think she's being a little manipulative? Because there's a scene at the very end of this part where the the guys start talking shop. Right. And they, they're like they're seeing how they can help each other uh, do some stuff. And, and, and she goes, good boys. And I don't know, like that has a very dog connotation to me. <laughs> and maybe that's just me as a pet owner reading into that. I don't know. But like there's very much like a they're both trying really hard and I appreciate that. And it's like they're trying very hard. I appreciate them trying me. Can't try. Not trying. Don't know how to do it. Can't do it. Uh, but th- my boys, my boys are trying very hard. I don't know. It's just like part of that. And, and I might be reading too much into that. But part of that rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, it's a tad condescending as a word choice. Um, I, I definitely like left the, this little bit with a different kind of impression in my head of who Aaron is. Maybe slightly more critical, um, but I'm not about to say like she's some horrible manipulative monster like no i i would I, never call her that either no. I, I i think she's doing things that everyone kind of does in in their lives right yeah sure sure um so uh, well i am I'm, I'm let's just say i'm still i still kind of i still kind of am a stand for for Irene. um i'm not but, gonna sit here and say that in my life i have never like said something to someone i liked about someone else to see how they reacted yeah, right. to it. Like Good I reaction. definitely did that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Not, not necessarily going to endorse it either, but. No, I don't think it's a particularly good thing to do, but no. it's a very understandable human thing right. to do. All things considered on the scope of shit that happens in this story, pretty <laughs> harmless. OK, let's just no, no. move on. We have to talk about we're... this for 20 more minutes because yeah. it's the worst thing that's happened in this book. Right. It's it's relatable, I think, is why we're talking about it. Yeah. So uh, next is chastity. And uh, it's almost super terrible when Kenzie gets cut off from Darlene's power and uh, seems to assume the worst. She almost like seems to fall over. Yeah. She's like so shocked that they would have done that. Yeah. And like the thing is, you cut me off like you excluded me from the group, not we just ended the effect. It's like, no, you've excluded me from the group. How could you? Uh, right. Which is her worst fear. Uh, right. And and here we get the Kenzie hug. This is the Kenzie hug moment where she says, I want to hug you all so bad. But Victoria told me to wind it back it hurts. And that's when they, they cut her off. Um, and like at the beginning here, you're like, Oh good. You're like, Victoria told you to watch your rules a little bit. You're kind of stretching them or breaking them. And you're being conscious of that. And, and then Chastity's like, no, I think you've earned it. Go ahead and hug. And you're like, Oh, okay. Okay. Well, whatever. Okay. Right. And this hug, while the hug ends, the powwow between the four of them continues throughout the entirety of chastity's they, they they never stop making physical contact throughout the entirety of chastity's section of this this arc yeah yeah that's true that's so, funny yay uh we also learn a little bit more about what a piece of shit heartbreaker was i mean we uh -huh. that's been sprinkled here and there but uh it's good characterization for chastity mm -hmm. um and i can't help but notice that each of these characters is kind of touching base with the past that they're right. all e each of the characters we've cycled through they're reaching back to refer to some person in their past, usually some person who has been terrible uh, and the consequences of that terribleness. So, you know, parents usually. Aaron's parents are kind of making her life harder and, and made some choices that have negatively affected her. Vista's parents are obviously garbage. Um, I mean, I guess you could kind of, I mean, definitely uh, 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 Crystal has some stuff going on with her parents. And then, of course, Chastity's parents both yeah. in completely in completely different ways yeah and then of course carol as well my parents family like the past and how the past with these people influences your future i think that's something we've seen throughout the story and and you're absolutely right that each point of view character in this chapter is doing it as well one of the things that i noticed that kind of lines up right with this is that like they also tend to look out at each other and see everyone else with their family. This is kind of like we talked about earlier, like this, this exterior sheen that we go look and see people with their family. Like I think at one point Aaron looks out and sees people with their family and she's a little jealous because her family, and she says, my family's still the fallen. Like I, I am, I've got stuff with my family and she looks out and sees people that have their family there and she's jealous of it. But of course we know, <laughs> we know that those family situations are a lot more complicated that are almost as complicated as, 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 uh, Aaron's are with her family. And Chastity does a similar thing here because she says others had family, Victoria, Capricorn, Vista, Gollum had, had a girlfriend and family present. And again, out of everyone listed with maybe the exception of, of Gollum here, everyone listed there has some family shit they're going on. So yeah, their family are here, but, and, and from the exterior, that's great and happy and wonderful. And look, people are hugging, but yeah, no, it's really fucked up. Right. <laughs> like really yeah, I fucked mean, up. I mean, Gollum doesn't have family shit going on because his parents were two monsters who are dead now. Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah. But yeah, he's got a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he's got his foster family there. He's got yeah, a girlfriend. that's true. That's he's true. got no family issues. That guy. Yeah, yeah, None yeah, at all. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Right. So so all, all these things are linked together. Right. We're yeah. doing we're doing a lot of things in parallel, focusing on 
parents, family, things that have been done to you that you're still dealing with or not dealing with years later, many different angles on these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this part here before we move on, um, that like there's this, these mini conversations going on and we, we kind of go back to this Darlene needs a name project we've had going through many, many chapters. Um, and, and, and I continue to love these little moments and they're so, they're so good at like laying the seeds for character conflict in the future because like they're talking about one of the names and, and Aiden says, Darlene liked it too. And she's like, um, I didn't, you didn't, but you seem so pleased. I was pleased you were so interested in picking a name for me, not the name exactly. Then you need to say something. Mm-hmm. And and that's like it's just like little like little fun character revealing interactions that also like lay these seeds, right? Like you like the, and they're just like so scary, right? Yeah. Um and I, like we've talked about this every heartbroken chapter, like every single one because they're here. Like and I just feel like I'm going to be just perpetually stressed out <laughs> about these people. Yeah. Yeah, right. I I feel like I mean, we've had a few we've had a few arcs where the heartbroken have, have featured, right? Yeah. I I, I'll, I I and I and I don't want to overstate this, but I feel like maybe this arc we're kind of winding up for some kind of finale with the heartbroken, or or we're going somewhere different with the heartbroken. You know? Yeah, I like, I think that's a fair a fair guess. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We'll see. <laughs> uh, Ashley stops by to talk to Chastity. Uh, to reassure herself that Kenzie is in, in a good place with the chicken tenders. And like, I mean, they are, but, but again, like we were just talking about not as well, because like during this conversation, during the conversation with Chastity and Ashley are talking about them, Candy kisses chicken little on the cheek and gets immediately sent to timeout. And Darlene mouths this like very appreciative. Thank you to, to Chastity for sending Candy to timeout. And so like, we're in this conversation where two people are like, well, is it good long-term that these guys are together? Like there's another example of ways in which this is all going to blow up. And even Chaster says here, when, when blood is shed, it will not be a small amount of blood. There's a lot of indications here that when this thing that we've kind of been, been laying seeds for and watching kind of like boil, when it, when it boils over, it's not going to boil over in a small way. It's going to boil over in a really, really bad way. And I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen soon. I think, I think you're probably right that, that it seems we're leading to that. I don't know if it's going to happen at all, but when it does happen, it will be bad. Yeah. That reminds me of, of kind of why I I say that I feel like we're building to something with the heartbroken is we, we've been told throughout the whole story that, things can get really terrible with the heartbroken, but, but it's always yeah. like a joke, right? It's always like, Oh man, there's, they sure are scary. Huh? That, that, that's a fun trope, the scary, mm-hmm. creepy kids. But like now we're in the situation where you've got uh Roman and Juliet who like really actually hate each other. Like it's yeah. not like, haha. And I, I don't know. There's a lot, there's a lot of powder keg potential. Um, I think. Yeah. And a lot of different, uh, not only, I guess, among the heartbroken and then kind of like in a separate circle off to the side amongst the uh, chicken tenders in, in in a different way. Yeah, I mean, like, it's so it's so terrifying. And like, I think you're right that the, we'll get to the Roman and Juliet stuff that that starts in that same way. Right. I think at the at the beginning of it, it's played off as a joke. And then we see how serious that that joke. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, wait, no, there's real animosity and actual stakes and consequences of right. this whole thing. Uh, and it's terrifying. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, like w- there's so like the, the 
the the love triangle that is Darlene, Chicken Little, and Kenzie like keeps me up at night. It is it is terrifying. Like yeah. there's so many different ways this can go wrong. Like and it could go wrong in ways that trigger each and every one of these characters' absolute worst tendencies. And I'm so scared. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um and just to kind of put a cap on that, I just love this writing. I just couldn't help but smile. A person could have been drawn and quartered 10 feet from the huddle, and it might not have distracted them from their conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's really, it's very good detail work, very, very evocative imagery. And, and just the fact that it's it's like, this is Chastity's mind. This is the kind yeah. of thing she thinks about. Yeah, absolutely. This, this is maybe, this is probably not a, uh, 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 analogy is not the right word. This is not imagery that Victoria would have used. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to, to, to throw a cap on our I'm terrified about the chicken nuggets, um, this section ends with Kenzie being told she doesn't get to come on the next mission because it's not she's they got to keep her safe and she's still going to get to help out, but she doesn't get to come. And it ends with her uh, agreeing with a smile. Yeah. And you're just like, Jesus. <laughs> right. Yep. Uh, next up, Ray Vera. Uh, and this this is so good. This is like, I don't know. Like emotionally speaking, I think this is my favorite part. Although all these little little snippets are great. So yeah. By- Byron is the one who interacts with his parents because his mom doesn't really want to talk to Tristan at all, which is way sad. Yeah. So th- this is the first section that I've, I felt like I could have talked about every single line in it. And I had to stop myself and just move on because we would have been here all night. But I, I agree with you. I-, I loved this part so much. And it is time, Matt, for Hug Update 2019. Okay. Because the section starts off with Mrs. Vera making Byron go change into different clothes, removing the armor so she can hug him properly. But of course, there's no hug for Tristan. And I, I love this. I love this. I, first of all, the idea of needing to change so that she can hug him is an especially thematic thing for the character who swaps and changes between the two brothers. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's like there's there's a lot of connotation there. Change out of your armor. Don't change into Tristan, though. Don't change that way. Change this way. Mm-hmm. And I think this gets even worse when you think about it for a moment and realize that Tristan can feel every single bit of this hug, the warmth. He can feel the love. He can smell his mom. Like, you know, you, your, your parents kind of smell like home to you sometimes, right? Yeah. Like there's love yeah. there. Sure. You can you can smell your mother as, as she hugs you. And he experiences all of it knowing it's not for him knowing that his mom asked Byron to change for a proper hug, but not to change to him just to change out of his armor. And I think that's absolutely devastating and really, really wonderfully sets up this this whole thing with the two parents and these two brothers. Yeah. And we're going to see Tristan just get absolutely dragged for a, a few times, right? Yeah. Basically, I mean, I'm going to kind of state it out right now, but we're going to see a bunch of instances of people who Tristan loves and cares about um, not being able to look past what he did, despite the fact that Byron has forgiven him. That's great. That's wonderful. I'm I'm like still happy about that. These other people have not forgiven him. Yeah. That they have not made any movement on that actually. And and it's tough. Like here we have Ray though. Ray, his dad, is trying really hard. Um, you know, he's thinking about how the mom's way of handling things is is different from the way he handles things. She reaches out to people. She collects everybody's take on things. He's he's I think more internal and takes his own counsel. Yeah, yeah, and it's really it's really fascinating because she's kind of the exact person that can be swept up into the 
into the Gary Nieves type of information trap, right? To, to force people into believing a certain thing about people. Um, like it's, it's so fascinating to me because she like, she talks to people and gets firsthand accounts of this stuff. Right. Um, he, he, she, she talks to people. She was talking to capes and asking capes, pummeling capes with questions about this whole thing. And, but Mr. Vera here even says like, yeah, she gets all the information and it might change her point of view a little bit, but there's so many more, bullshit youtube videos than there are capes in front of me talking to me and explaining this stuff to me and so that stuff always wins out it's just it's just a really good encapsulation of like the power of this kind of thing in the information age right the power of just the sheer amount of content skewed in a certain way yeah right it's all framed in this scary way it's that stuff that we saw in in glowworm you know it's just a constant barrage of of the scariest worst stuff yeah. And I, I, there's, there's these two lines that I think express the entire Vera parents interaction, right? When, when Anita says, it is scary, parahumans. And Ray's response is, our son, Anita, our sons. And I love this because, of course, like that's Anita's whole thing is like her kid's a parahuman, but she's still terrified of parahumans. Ray is trying to guide her, trying to lead her. But he's not he's not perfect too because he says our son first right and then he mm. almost corrects himself our sons no it's not it's, it's both of them sorry yeah um, right. and there's little moments like that little things that like he's not outright antagonistic towards tristan because he is trying very hard but he is still he's still mad he's still angry at what his son did and he's just trying in a different kind of way yeah right he's he he doesn't understand it right but he's he's trying to reach out anyway yeah i think i think my take on him is that he just believes that if if they open their arms to him then everything can be made right ultimately yeah that doesn't mean that he's like forgiven him in his heart right but what he says is like byron's forgiven you that's enough for me yeah that doesn't mean he's forgiven him but but i think it means i'm 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 going to open my arms even if I haven't forgiven you and, and I have faith that things will work out. Yeah, he doesn't even say that's enough for me. I think I think the language is really specific here. Like he says, Byron says he forgives you. I can manage it. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay, yeah. So like that's like that's like it's like it's not I've forgiven you. Mm-hmm. It's if Byron was able to get a place where he can forgive you, I can do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't done it yet. I, I can do it. I can get there. And there's this moment here when we're, we're talking about Anita and kind of the way she gets swept up into the, the bullshit um, where he says to himself, like, ah, it it momentarily makes me wish that Tristan could join this conversation because um, because he is the type of person, unlike Byron, who is much is much more passive in certain ways. Tristan is the guy who's, who's brazen enough to challenge her on her bullshit. He's the guy that's going to be like, no, that's wrong. You're wrong about this. And here's why. Uh, Byron is not that type of person. That's just not who he is. And but and Bray says well, it'd be really great if he was here because he's much better at this than I am and he could do it. But I just love the word momentarily there, right? Like, mm-hmm. so for a brief moment, Ray wished that Tristan could be here too. But just for a brief moment, like, like he is still angry, like that he is still mad about it. And I love these these little bits of his point of view betray these things about him that he, I don't think he ever comes right out and says in his internal narrative, um, "I am mad at my son." I like he's he 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 kind of circles around it. Because he doesn't want to be that way. He wants it to be better, but he's struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, like you said, he's, he's uh, finally 
kind of guides Tristan. Well, well for, first he says he wants some time alone with his son, right? Uh, this is great writing because uh, Anita says, I'll be at the car nursing a grudge. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just love that. And I, I can like yeah. hear that in her voice in my head. Yeah. Um, so the, then he, the, he asks for them to change out so he can talk to Tristan. And he tells him he would be open to talk if Tristan wants to. And he's trying to be open and to reconcile. And this is, this is maybe my favorite like bit. We talked about this earlier. Byron hadn't been wearing a jacket and Tristan wasn't either. But Tristan seemed to immediately feel the cold. More pronounced by the cold was his reaction to seeing Ray. He looked away. Yeah, I love that. Like Byron is comfortable in this situation. He's content. He's okay. He can do it. We immediately switch to Tristan and he's immediately uncomfortable. Like it's such a perfect way of bringing the elements and bring the difference in how they can handle the cold into into their characterization. I love right. it. I love it's, it so much. It's using this idea of like, okay, yeah, Byron's a little bit cold resistant to be like, everything's just stacked against Tristan right now. Right. Everything is just kicking him in the, in the teeth and he's just having to take it. Right. He's having yeah. to, to trudge yeah. on. And, yeah. And yeah. one of the things we didn't talk about is like, Mrs. Vera is almost being overbearing. Mm-hmm. Like to, to Byron, she's like, you have to call me. Like you, 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 you didn't call me every day when you went to the planet, when you went on this mission, you didn't call me. I didn't hear from you. I had to hear from someone else. And it's like, you have to call me twice a day for two months. And it's like this kind of like this crazy overbearing, like need to connect here. And like every one of these moments you're thinking about Tristan in the background, right? Where it's like, she's like, it's so important to me that I talk to you, Byron every day, but I have not talked to Tristan in years. I don't know. Um, and it, like, I think, I think that even makes it worse for Tristan, right? Because he's sitting there listening to all this, listening to how, how much she's demanding from her son, but not both their sons. Right. I mean, this, this sucks, right? You just reminded me, right? Cause all that, all the bad stuff happened a little bit before gold morning Mm -hmm. and it's been two years since gold morning. So his his mom hasn't talked to him for two years. Yeah. It's terrible. That's rough. That's horrible. Especially, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but wasn't like, wasn't Tristan like really close to his parents yeah. before this whole thing happened? I think he was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think he was like the favorite son, honestly. And, and right. Byron, they right. were just kind of like, yeah, yeah, Byron, uh, you know, uh, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't know you liked ice cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actual quote. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I forgot. About that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and there's this moment where Ray says to Byron, like, I, I forget the exact words, but he says he I have never been more proud of you is something to that effect. And again, like, that's wonderful and great. And it, it makes me so happy to see Ray finally treat his son with respect and love. But the other kid is sitting there listening to all this. Yeah. Right. And yeah. he gets none of that. He gets none of that. And and it's not to say yeah. Ray's not trying because you're right. This whole conversation, he, he is, he asked to see him. He asked to talk to the him. He is trying, but yeah, I mean, things have, things have swapped the other way when it comes to their parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that jumped out to me was that, uh, they asked if he's hurt and he's like, no, I didn't get hurt. Tristan got hurt a little bit. And then they, that's it. Nobody yeah. asks. Ray makes oh. a face, but that's it. Yeah. Hurt, hurt how? Where? Right. Is he okay? What's going on? Yeah. He, right. Yeah. And, and and really he got he got cut pretty bad. Like I, yeah. I yeah. Um and but yeah, like Ray's kind of extending this olive branch and Tristan says she might say she doesn't want to see me. And and Ray replies, She might, 
20 years with her and I don't know for sure myself, but you got yourself into this. Having to brave this is the price you pay. Just know you don't need to wonder with me. Byron says he forgives you. I can manage it. And yeah, that's that's beautiful. It's it's been so it dusty is. for this last month. <laughs> I, I it is really beautiful. I, I like it, it's beautiful and it's it's harsh but true, right? Mm. You got yourself into this having to be having to brave this is the price you pay. That's true. You did you did a terrible awful thing, Tristan. You did a you did a bad thing and there are consequences to that bad thing. And and you you have to be the one to try, right? Like Yes, your parents should be the ones that love you unconditionally and reach out to you and and you should not have to work this hard to to reengage with your mother, but people are people, right? And you are the one that caused that break. So, you might need to be the one that that takes the risk to repair it. And the risk is getting hurt. The risk is her refusing you and it breaking your heart. And yeah, but if you want to repair that relationship, you might have to be the one to do it. It puts the, it's this whole new angle on things that when you do something like what he did, you don't just have to, you know, make amends um, with the person who you wronged. You yeah. have to make amends with pretty much everybody in your life, like like on a one-on-one basis. And, yeah. and they're all going to have kind of different sticking points. Like it's, it, it seemed it, it's almost, it's almost weird and, and backwards, although it does kind of make a certain amount of sense that Byron would, would forgive him before, you know, basically his victim would forgive him before yeah. his parents. I, I think that actually does make sense. Like that actually seems realistic. Although if you, if you step back from it, 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 it seems a bit surprising, but yeah. I think that, I think that is how it is. There was a thing, uh, this is, I guess, kind of related. This is a personal anecdote, but I, I, when I was in relationships with people, I used to whine to my friends about my girlfriend a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if she did something that pissed me off or we were in a fight or something, I would go to my friend and I would I would bitch about it. I would be upset and mad and want to rant about it and vent about it. And what I realized was when I did that, so we would fight. I would complain to my friend about it. I would make up with my girlfriend. We would make up and be OK. But my friend wasn't party to the makeup part, right? right. Like He wasn't party to the steps that were done to, to reconcile and. And so he was still pissed off because right. I just came to him with this this shitty thing that my girlfriend did. And now he's still mad at them. And, yeah. and, and I think that's exactly what's happening here is like a, one person did a terrible, bad thing to the other. They worked at it amongst themselves to reconcile. But nobody else got to see that. Nobody else was party to that kind of reconciliation. And so they're not there yet. And it is. It's a very different kind of thing. And it's it's a lot harder, I think, for some of those people. Yeah, there's um, just less, I mean, Byron and Tristan kind of were forced to, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really, really, really interesting. I, I like this, uh, like I said, the the Mr. Vera part of the chapter is my favorite. I love it. I love it so much. And I, I love that as they walk away, the two brothers are, are rapidly switching back and forth, talking to each other. And yeah. I don't know if I'm reading it right, but I always, whenever they do that, I read that as like, oh, good, they're communicating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whether for good or bad, they are communicating like yeah. like I'm sure I'm sure Byron knowing Byron, who I think I think is a good guy. I, he's a really good guy. I think he's probably trying to help his brother out a little bit, make his brother feel a little bit better because Tristan's yeah. going to be down in the dumps. Yeah. He's, um, yeah. He's probably giving him a bit of a, a pick me up talk. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, I, I never like if you had told me at the beginning of the story that the Capricorn brothers would be like fighting for pole position in my favorite characters list. I don't think I would have I would have agreed to that. But I really love them. I really yeah. do. Well, they've they've 
shown so many more facets, I think, than yeah. were yeah. evident at the beginning, you know, and which is fine, right? That's, that's, yeah. how, that's how stories work. Indeed. But yeah, they're great. All right, then we switch to number lad, number four, Edgelord Supreme. <laughs> for those who are slightly less of a weeb than average, the kanji for she means both four and death, um, which is why he's written that character 4,444 times. Yeah. Uh, so number four is probably the edgiest of his cohort. Yeah, that's not at all ominous, right? The, the arc title name is dying and we have... A, a number boy writing out death over and over and uh-huh. over again. <laughs> Not at all. Death uh, times it, death times 11 times yeah, it's, 10,000. It's terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah. and so we talked about this a little bit, but this portion of the interlude like breaks form with a lot of the other things. Like there's no hug here. We have no hug to talk about. I'm sorry, Matt hug watch is over for this chapter. Um, he, he wasn't one of the people that crystal observed. This takes place somewhere else, right? Every other section of the, the chapter took place in the same area about the same time. This we're in a different location. Now this is the meeting prepping. And I mean, I, I like it because like, I think that was that. And this is, there's a lot of specific setup for, um, for the event, the specific events, like a lot of those earlier arcs were emotional, establishing emotional beats. This is establishing a lot of the literal beats and to not say there's no emotional beats here, right? There's, this is the Sveto one, right? The one rule that this keeps track of is it's a character observing and interacting with one of our main characters. In this case, it's Sveta, but, um, it's a little bit different and I, I like the difference. Yeah. Um, and this just popped in my head, just this, just the memory of, of the glowworm chapter when, uh, Sveta comes into the chat room and gives a little hugs or just says hugs. And then Kenzie mm-hmm. says dies, um, <laughs> which is, which is hilarious, but also in context of the arc title is, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that means anything. Probably not. Um, it's also but, funny because when Sveta hugs people with her tentacles, they, they die. That's, that's right. That's right. Not anymore, though. Not anymore. Now she they, they could have made that joke. Now they just have razor sharp uh, bits on them that slice at people. Slice while ripping. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> where were we? I totally lost I, where we were. Somewhere. Were we here? Yeah. Are we right here? here? Right here. Right here? Okay. I, I don't know. Just a little note. I thought it was interesting that he refers to, you know, the number man as both Kurt and as number zero. Yeah, um, that's interesting. And also, yeah, like you said, he's playing a disturbing amount of attention to Sveta, thinking about the concept of reinventing oneself, how she reinvented herself, and about his complicated past with her. Yeah, and one of the things that I really like about this section is because we're in a number boy's head, it's really hard to get an emotional read on him in this moment. Like, is he disgusted with Sveta because she reinvented herself? Is he mad at her for killing Dr. Mother, which is another parent of the past, by the way, mm-hmm. quote unquote parent? Um, we don't know because he's very emotionless as a character, right? He's kind of a very like flat, like stoic type of character. So like... We're, we're being told these things, but we're not sure exactly how he feels about it. And I think the end of this chapter is intentionally ambiguous. And I think this kind of stoicism of the character helps build that amb- ambiguity a little bit. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. Um, different people have different takes on on whether he's going to just try to kill Sveta or not. I, well, I, we'll I, get there in a second. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, so four also gives us a kind of rundown of what the whole tactical situation has been. 
which is useful heading into these subsequent action-packed chapters. The whole first wave has vanished incommunicado, including Dragon. <laughs> Terrifying. Um, yep, and Victoria presents some power-amplifying vials from Sheen. Cool. Vials. Nothing bad ever happened in a vial. Uh-huh. It's great. I'm glad we're just trusting these people. We're just going to drink these awesome vials. I'm sure they're going to work great. Yeah, right. That's, um, well, I can't, I can't wait to see what the vials do. <laughs> so the chapter ends on this awesomely complex note that Four is aware that one of his siblings has been having doubts, feeling guilt and remorse, which could create issues. So, yeah, I think I read this as him planning to kill Sveta. Like, that's his, that's his objective here. Um, but other people seem to read it as him just wanting to kill the other number lad. And that doesn't really seem to make sense because his goal is to get everything in working order and, like, killing his brother would reduce their combat effectiveness and that, that doesn't seem like what he wants. Yeah, but if if the number boy is operating outside of working order, you just gotta just gotta get rid of him. But if he can also solve the problem by killing Sveta, then he would do that. Like I, well, I, I mean, how does killing Sveta solve the problem of his brother feeling remorse about what he did to Sveta? I, I, it it doesn't, but um the number boys historically don't necessarily think in the most straightforward ways. Like they, they literally think that putting out, uh, um, um, contenders eyes was like cosmically just in some way. So like th they think in terms of balancing scales and, and weird shit like that. So I don't know. Seemed, yeah. it seemed it seemed obvious to me when I read it and then other people and then like no one else seemed to agree with me. So I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> I well, mean, let me know my take on this is that I think you're right, but I also think you're wrong because I think it's supposed to be ambiguous. I think we're supposed to leave this chapter unsure of, oh, shit, is he talking about Sveta? Is he going to kill Sveta? Is uh -huh. he going to kill or is he going to kill the other number? What's going to happen here? And how is this going to play out at the worst possible time in the middle of this teacher invasion? I, I, I think I think that's what we're supposed to be thinking. So, um you're right until you're not. Yeah. I think, I think you may be right that it's going to be, it's going to be the third thing. It's going to be none of, it's going to be neither of the things that people assumed, right? Maybe they're just going to all collectively go up to Sveta and go, we're sorry. <laughs> yeah. We serve you now. All right, Scott, 15.1. We're beginning the arc now. Great. <laughs> we're an hour into the podcast and we're, we got three chapters to go. We are going to move through these a little faster than yeah. we normally do. The first one we really wanted to nail down, but I think we yes. can, I think we can, we're going to have, we're just going to have to. Sorry. I'm sorry. So we call open a little bit disorientingly on Victoria walking down an alley, hood covering her against the rain. The wretch carves furrows in the walls of the alley beside her. When the thralls notice her, the team commences their ambush on one of the entrances to teacher's base. I think the opening of this chapter is like really badass. Mm -hmm. Like this is technically the opening of the arc sans interlude. Right. And and you have Victoria walking down this alley that it's raining and the rain is soaking through her clothes and her hood. And then suddenly as she sees the bad guys, the rain stopped hitting my shoulders and hood as I saw them. And it doesn't say as I brought the wretch up, it's just like, we know that's what happened, right? Like she sees them, she brings the wretch up and the rain stops hitting them. And then and then, yeah, you're right. She's dragging it along the alleyway. It's like ripping up the sides of the alley. And it's like, oh, yeah, fuck. Yeah, this is badass. She's going to kick all these people's asses. And then you remember like the Victoria of last chapter who put on this persona and is doing this. And you're just like, 
uh-huh. <laughs> I'm so sad again. Right. I well, was like, momentarily, I'm like, fuck yeah, bad. Oh, yeah. Because oh, oh. we always have to remember that the wretch is, an in, it is, a, is a physical manifestation of an invisible trauma. Yeah. Reaching out and clawing at and destroying her surroundings while she appears to be fine. Mm-hmm. That there's it's the best the best metaphor ever uh, for trauma that has not been dealt with. Yeah. So yeah, Thrall tries to punch her and she brings the force field up the block, but Waste helps her out by using the force field to bite the guy's hand <laughs> with impervious force field teeth. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes in my mind's eye, my stupid brain. Um, like sees the wretch as kind of this like just kind of amorphous blob with like it, I just it has a couple limbs but it's mostly just this blob and I, I like forget the details of like no there are like multiple legs and heads and pieces hanging off this thing and then you have moments like this where you're like oh yeah um uh-huh. and like I love how this is done too because when when the wretch face bites down um we see it's it's a it's a, a teeth bared like open mouth kind of in like a a, a teeth bared grimace and yeah. that grimace is it's she sees it she only sees it because it's covered in the blood from the bite so like she's seeing this like bloody face with an open mouth and like teeth and like i ima- it doesn't specifically say it's like angry but i imagine it like looks angry and it's yeah. just like it's horrifying like it's just and you're just like oh yeah jesus like i forget about i just called this stuff badass and look look at this now yeah jesus We're- I, I mean, it's it's definitely horror awesome. It, it, I also kind of visualize it like snarling, even though yeah. all she says is mouth open, teeth bared. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you make that face without appearing angry, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then the thralls put up a pretty stiff fight, uh, setting the tone essentially for how this fighting is going to go for the rest of this arc. Basically, um, they don't surrender unless they're completely taken out, more or less. We realize partway through the fight that there are heartbroken elements present here as well. So, you know, we got another team up arc. Yep. Uh, we've got Juliet and Roman, the two who hate each other. Yeah. We've got Imp keeping the peace between them. And bringing up the rear are Citrine's newly made uh, cauldron capes. Do we still use that word? I think we should call them beaker buddies. Yeah. I mean, Victoria calls them Mortari capes, but like, we're not going to Be- use that word. Beaker buddies. <laughs> Beaker buddies. Beaker buddies. One one thing I really like, uh, just like kind of the very early parts of this and, and even into some of next chapter, like how amazing these guys are being in their working together, right? Like there, mm-hmm. there's this, there's like everyone just kind of drops into location. Like even Rain's kicking ass. Everyone's just like perfectly timed and they're just taking all of these guys. And it, it's really smart, I think, and clever because like in the back of your head, you still have this knowledge that, Hey, all the strongest dudes went against these people and we don't know where they are anymore. Dragon's gone. And so they're marching up, they're, they're marching up to this, uh, this place and they're kicking ass. And so you're like, you're like, okay, but you're like comfortable, but you don't want to be comfortable because you mm-hmm. know it's going to get worse. You know something bad has to be uh, – the further they go in, something bad has to be there. But, man, they're just like kicking ass and taking names, and you're like, yeah. So it's this really conflicted feeling, and I think that really helps ramp up the tension a little bit. Yeah, right. I mean it's really it's, – it's basically horror, right? It's a kind of suspense where you're like, look, I, I, I know that you're going to kick the asses of these thralls because – Basically, I know the teacher has all these trump cards. Yeah. Um, literal, like, 
Trump capes. <laughs> Literal yeah. Trump cards, yeah. And and so, like, sure, you're going to get, he's, if anything, he's l- luring you in. Um, yeah. I mean, that's my assumption, which. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. And, and there's this really, I think, comparing this as I was reading after having read uh, chapter two and chapter three, um, there's this real big difference to me, like in seeing how like surgically amazing they're being at taking down the thralls here versus the kind of surgical amazingness with which the warden capes are taking down the thralls once we get to the big war scene. Mm-hmm. Because they're like, they're just killing them, right? They're just like, just throwing shit at them and squishing them with shit stuff. Here, they're being surgical and efficient, but they're not killing anyone. They're just taking them down. And there's even a moment where Juliet jokes about how, yeah, we found some, we killed them all. And it's like shocking and horrifying in that moment. And you realize she's kidding. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Um, But I I just, it, it makes a very good contrast and it kind of shows like how the conflict escalates. We have this, this early conflict where they're doing great. They're being efficient and they're kicking ass, but there's no death. And then we move into, in these later chapters, lots of death. Yeah. As the art continues, it, it like feels more like, I don't know what word to use other than like gross and, and uncomfortable as it's just like, yeah, they're just like smashed a guy with filing cabinet, whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that was just one out of out of many, really. Like there's there's just there's somebody who's just like lobbing artillery. But what is is that just blowing people up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah. like we'll get there. But like it's yeah. just that these these capes were the, the capes that they encounter later on in this battle are war hardened, like like warriors, Soldiers, like yeah. literal yeah. war, like warriors. Like they're yeah. they're the wardens, but they're the ward, the war, the war. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, they are not here to fuck around. They are not street level capes that are like not really up to killing people. They are here to get to defeat the enemy. And, 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 and I'm not saying it's not called for, like, I'm not, I'm not making judgments against the level of violence these people are using. It's just, it's just a very clear escalation point, especially when compared to the fighting that happens early in this chapter. Yeah. Well, it's an, it's an escalation point and it changes the tone Yeah. in a way that makes it less pure fun and more like, Oh, you know? Yeah. 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 So then we get a little, you know, earlier title card. Uh, so wild bow is really playing with structure in this Mm -hmm. arc. Again, we started with an interlude and then the first chapter starts basically in media res. And then we flash back to the big gathering in the bunker where all this stuff is being planned. Scenario puts this whole attack into context for us. We've got nine teams total simultaneously attacking three different entrances, uh, in groups of three. So this this is the Mortari plus Breakthrough plus Heartbroken team, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and these books have used this kind of jumping back and forth in time uh, techniques before. Um, it's been, it's But not very often, right? Um, and it is something that we're used to. So I'm curious why you think the book in this moment chooses to use this. And I know the reason is probably because it's cool, but... Matt, we're doing an analytical podcast, so we have to we have to analyze it. So why do you think? Why do you think? Why is this chapter organized in this manner? Man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel like um, I feel like it's building to something in a certain way that that where in retrospect, it's going to make sense in an almost like a countdown sort of way. Um, like, yeah, it, it's it's more fun this way but also i think one of the key things that's happening here is the characters are not getting time to touch base 
to recoup after the really rather traumatic events of the last arc. They're just nope. Next thing, we're, we're not getting we're not getting a break. They're not getting a break. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're they're going right into the action. We're going right into the action, and we're gonna flash back so we understand what's happening. But it's not gonna feel like a breather. They don't get a breather. We don't feel like they got a breather. That's why we're starting in media res. There, I figured it out. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I mean, I think there are moments like the, the and the reason I ask is because I normally don't like this. And I didn't mind it here. So that immediately gets me curious. Like I, there, there's a there's like a thing that a lot of TV shows do at some point where they like start off the show with this big fight. And then like n- near the very end of the opening coda, uh, that's the complete wrong word. But the, uh, that the cold open um, is like like a moment where like all, all seems lost. Right. And then we break to credits and then we start three weeks earlier or uh-huh. something like that. And I hate I hate when. I hate when TV shows do that. I hate it so much. It's just like, I don't like that kind of storytelling at all. And I don't mind it here. And I think it's, pro- it's because it's not, it's not that exact same thing, right? It's, it's jumping back and forth. Um, I, I do think there is something to be said for starting with the action. Like, I think that, I think the reason why people do that is because action's exciting. And yeah. when we start with this action, we start with this great moment where Victoria walks down this, this alleyway and they just like, all, like she's at first, it seems like she's alone down the alleyway and then everyone else jumps out um, and like appears as they take everyone down. And and I don't think that that scene would have worked as well if you had done the planning part first. Right. If like you knew that she was with this group and she was with this vanguard um, of, of three different teams coming together, that moment wouldn't have worked as well. And there's little moments throughout the story. I think the the love lost being their moment is a real shocking thing that, again, would not have worked uh, if you'd done it in chronological order rather than jump back and forth. So, yeah, there's these little moments that I think the book takes full advantage of the structure that makes me appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely true that that it, it uses that to its advantage. And also, yeah. also, this isn't really the same as the like completely chaotic fight where you just you're like, what? How did we get into this situation? Right. Yeah. This is not really that because we're like, oh yeah, this is probably the attack on teachers' headquarters. Like you, you don't even need the flashback. Actually, you don't. Right. You don't actually need it. It helps. I, I appreciate it. It gives us a little bit more uh, context for what's happening. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I mean, I almost think we could have done without it. There's some stuff in here, though. Like, there's definitely some stuff in here. So, so let's um, talk about that stuff. <laughs> so Victoria thinks to herself, "Have to get right back on the horse." Aunt Sarah had loved horses, had escaped into them as a healing post-trigger, taking care of them at a family friend's until she was old enough, uh, sorry, well enough to ride. Mom hadn't liked it, but Aunt Sarah had been the one to do tutoring for the owner of a stable, just for a chance to ride a couple times a month. It even flavored the language she'd used. She'd had a term she'd used in our training that she'd called horsing. The idea was that horses tended to go where you looked, and flying capes had to focus on seeing distant things on the ground, and we'd unconsciously drift out of formation to get closer to those things. So, basically, um, Victoria's thinking a lot about Aunt Sarah here. We've had a lot of Aunt Sarah moments in these two chapters so far. Yeah, weird, right? (laughs) Um, I'm going to make up a new word. Here we go. I'm going to call this a double bow. Okay. Because we get it like wild bow. Mm-hmm. Get, do you get it? Do you get it? You get it. So, I mean, because this is a moment where that wild bow uses a lot. And I like, I, I call it as if like he's the only author that does this. No, he's not. But this is something that he uses a lot very cleverly where this is a thing that on the surface level read, this is just Victoria talking about her struggles with 
with what's going on, her struggles with her current mindset. Uh, she's put on this mask. She's made this transformation that Crystal witnessed last chapter, but she's still struggling. She doesn't feel normal. She's shaking and, and, and not really all there. Like she says, she's some, a part of her is still back trapped in that room with Amy. Um, and this is her, you know, literally just recalling a moment that Aunt Sarah used to help them kind of get off of that shakiness. And that's what it is. That's what it is, right? Yeah. But but it's also laying little seeds, laying little seeds, reminding us of who this person is, reminding us of the importance of Victoria's relationship with this person because it is going to pay off in the next chapter. Um, and that's it's doing those two things at once. And because it has I, I remember us talking about this on Worm. I just don't think we've ever put one of our stupid names to it um, because the literal interpretation is so well written and shaped and understandable the uh the sly uh, second level setup can almost go completely unremarked until Mm -hmm. you get to the payoff of that setup right and 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 you even then you may not even realize or or remember that this was here you right you don't i mean if you were binging this you might not even really consciously realize like hey we we were Aunt Sarah was mentioned 12 times before we actually saw her. Yep. But but uh, but yeah, definitely. It's definitely setting it up on a subconscious level, even if not a conscious level. The also, old the old double bow, the old double bow. Also, what's Aunt Sarah doing with these horses? Is she dealing with her trauma by, you know, using the, the, the modality of the horses? Yeah, she's horsing. She she is she coping. She's horsing. She's horsing. She's horsing. We got dealing. We got horsing. We got all kinds of we got all kinds of turns. Words. All right. Um, yes. So Victoria also takes the time to get in some very specific digs at Rune. No matter how. More than one. (laughs) Yeah. No matter how shaky, disoriented and spacey you are, Matt, there is always time to insult Nazis. (laughs) Especially ones that look like they smell the fart at all time and their costume just doesn't work at all. I, I love I love she's like it's yeah. a cute costume but it just uh uh-uh, uh it doesn't work thing. at all with just mm-hmm. her whole thing. her whole thing her whole everything <laughs> about just, her I yeah. hate you so much oh I hate when you talk right. it's like I, it's really great like we see I thought I think we saw like a, a maybe more um less emotionally charged dislike of Rune from Victoria that first time yeah back a, a, f- a few chapters ago but this is just her not in the mood of Victoria, who's uh-huh. just like, oh, I just fucking hate her. Yeah, I've definitely seen this in, in real life from real people be like, I hate that outfit, not because the outfit is ugly, but because I hate her. And, yeah. you know, therefore <laughs> the outfit is ugly, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the text goes out of its way to remind us that, hey, teacher's just going to take over everything if they don't stop him. So this extremely dangerous attack into the teeth of something that just made an army of capes, including dragon, go poof, is actually justified and necessary. So, yeah. Good, good, good. I mean, good to do that, right? It is. It is. And I, and I like how this is done, too, because like we know the stakes are super high here, but the, this this section ends on teacher would take the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I like this because like in Worm, it was always we have to prevent destruction of the world. And I'm not saying that what teacher is going to do here will not end up in like a, an Armageddon level, like destruction of the world event that very well could happen and probably will happen. But Right now, he's not actively trying to destroy the world. He just wants it. He wants mm-hmm. it all. And I just love this. I love that line. Teacher would take the world. I love that. 
Yeah, yeah, me too. So uh, the Kinsey iTech thing has apparently been duplicated now, and the team can use it in a cool teamworky way. Uh, the story has made sure to familiarize us with this tech and how it works, so it enters the story seamlessly here as we as we return back um, to, to to the action. Notably, it makes people's eyes shine a bright color. Capricorn blue is blue. Sveta's is cyan. Victoria's is golden yellow. See, you changed what you wrote in the script, so I couldn't yell at you. It's because you yelled at me earlier about this. <laughs> Matt just said Capricorn's is blue, and Capricorn's is not blue. Byron's is blue. Tristan's is red, and you're being Mrs. Vera, and yeah. it's mean. I just had to get on the bandwagon of like forgetting about and kind kind of just generally dissing uh, Tristan. Yeah, why don't you just go read a bunch of fake news Facebook articles too? Okay, jerk. All right, I will. Um, yeah. So we switch back to before again, and we see Rain choosing to allow Love Lost and Colt to come along with them. Yeah, and I really like th this is one of those moments where I'm really glad we got to see the before stuff because I really, really like that we get to see not only that like Rain is given the option that he's kind of the final deciding point on this, that like the, you, you get the strong hint that if Rain were to just say no to this, they probably wouldn't do it. Um, I really like that like our characters are looking out for each other and and the the structure of the story means that like he says... I want to go see Love Lost and Colt first. I want to talk to them. Let me let me go talk to them before I agree on this and kind of get a read on where they're at. And because we already know that they're there, because we jump we just jumped back in time, well, Love Lost and Colt are there. We know that already. Um we see that the result of this conversation that we don't need to see must have been successful. He must have seen something in them that made him comfortable enough to go say, yes, let them out temporarily, bring them, we need them. Um, and I really like that. Like the, the recognition of the book that we don't need to see that conversation to still get what happened during that conversation is like, I think it's it's great. It, it kind of trusts that the readers understand enough about Love Lost and Colt and enough about Rain to know that he got to there and to understand why he got there. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. We we can just imagine that conversation, and yeah, yeah. and I think while Bo is basically trusting us to know that we're you know we know, we know what probably happened there. Yeah, there's also this really sad moment where Victoria is like really pushing to have Vista on her team, but she's just not getting it. Um, I think it's Citrine who says she works really well with us. Maybe yeah. it's not Citrine. I don't remember who it is, but someone else said no, she works better on my team. Um, it's um the Cole. The Inferno creating one. God, you're <laughs> making me blank too. Okay. My God. Uh, the point is, uh, <laughs> Victoria really wants Vista on her team. She doesn't get it. Um, she says, she says that it's for strategy sake, right? Like she works really well with me too. But to me, it's just like she wants her emotional support there, right? Yeah. Like she wants her friends with her at this moment. Scenario. Um, there he yeah, is. Yeah, there totally. She, she just needs her friend and, yeah. uh, it's nothing to do with, and she's, she's kind of grudgingly admits that, yeah, okay. Power synergies are important here, but yeah, I need my friend. Yeah. So yeah, we, we then see Kinsey making the, <laughs> the eye tech things using dragons, little rapid prototyper fab tech lab thing. Uh, Kinsey then uses Darlene to link with her friends and then they copy her movements in order to work several times as fast. I don't know. Like, this is one of those things where I'm like, wow, that's really awesome. Um, also, 
really terrifying. Yeah, yeah. The story goes that, like like Victoria's like, um, like don't do that too much because like you're probably <laughs> gonna get like bad weird shit. And and Ashley's like, yeah, like bleed through, and and like you can almost see Kenzie thinking like, hmm, bleed through. Yeah, how could I use this? Right. Yes, I would love to become one with my friends. Yeah. Like literally melt together. Um. And just this the worst thing, whether we're linked or sorry, whether we're linked a lot or not, I really hope we're together for a really long time. Kinsey said, yeah, Darlene told her me too. Oh, God. Yeah, that's like terrifying. Like, uh-huh. it's, I, it's just I'm so scared. I'm so scared. Yeah. It's, it's worrying. <laughs> All right. Um. So more horse stuff i remain in the hallway again just a bit of that not yet on the horse trepidation i trusted them to handle this orson so horses matt just here's what matt's note in the script for this quote he pulled out said it's just in all caps horses (laughs) and i read this and i was like what are you what are you doing (laughs) what are you trying to say here horses are important to this arc I think I think what, what what I like about this is, um, you know, Victoria has always kind of been like the the take charge type of person, right? Like she's at the front, she's on the front line, she's gonna be the one to take over. She's not really the hang back and let others take care of it type of person, but she's so discombobulated here that she feels like she has to be that person, and that's I think very very a, a specific thing that the the text is doing here. Totally, yeah. Um, so the teams then breach into another couple of rooms and they quickly take down the thralls. Uh, the fact that we don't actually know Samuel's power is uh, lampshaded pretty pretty well here, I think. When I read you wrote that, I was like, wait, we don't know his power. I feel I feel so much better because I was like I we were talking about this earlier. I have the hardest time remembering the heartbroken and their powers. Um, and I think maybe it's because so few of them actually have cape names. So there's not like a clever name to link up to the power. Like it just took me forever to remember why when they were fighting people right outside in the alleyway, one of why one of them just froze randomly. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's Juliet's power. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. I yeah. I, I, I also had to look things up. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's fine. But like you said, they don't have like, it's, it's funny how much we actually rely on like the, the evocative Cape name that's suggestive of what the power actually is. Yeah. And stuff like that. Um, I, I did look up, I'm going to spoil the name game that I looked up. Juliet's cape name is apparently Katana. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know how to say that, but it means chain. So you're like, okay, I get it. You ch- chain them, you, you bind them to you. Fine. Yeah. I yeah, got gotcha. you. clever. Yeah. Now I will remember that. Yep. Yeah. We also get our first look at some of the Beaker Buddies here too, Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically the one Victoria will lovingly refer to as Harpoon. Mm-hmm. And I will lovingly refer to as Nippoon. Mm-hmm. Because he's got the the nipples. He's got the nipples. Yeah, I, I love this, and I really hope that he that like the nipples are just always there and <laughs> and real and really evident. And like even when he wears like a a normal t shirt, you can see them through the t shirt. Only in this book will you read a sentence that says, uh, "They reminded me of dog nipples." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, they find that in a room that they need to pass through are being stored hundreds of people. And the chapter ends with, what the fuck are we supposed to do with all of this? And I think this is really a perfect ending to this chapter, because up until this point, our group had kind of been steamrolling, right? Like, we're just walking through this place. We're kicking ass. We're not really there's there's resistance. Yes, but we're like easily defeating it. No problem at all. And like we said earlier, the reader 
knows that something else is up, right? Like we know, and not even the reader, the characters know it too. We know that the strongest capes in the world or some of the strongest capes in the world, uh, lost or something happened to them. So we're just kind of like sitting here waiting and, and this is not the, the full other shoe dropping, right? Cause we have not gotten to the war zone. That is that, that central area, but suddenly we see all these people here and we're like, Oh shit. This is going to get a lot more complicated. And I don't know about you, but the second I read this, I jumped to the conclusion that Imp makes in the next chapter, which is that, oh, teacher threw all these people to purposefully like just throw like meat shields in front yeah. of capes because he doesn't care about them. Right. Yeah. It, 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 in, in some form. Right. Like either as like a trap or as just a way to slow them down or confuse yeah. them or meat yeah. shield. Like there's a bunch of different kind of overlapping ways that they can be used. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you said, uh, as this next chapter fifteen point two begins, we we um, um, start to deal with this new situation. We we do have to touch on Imp's little bit about how she kidnaps and confines any guy who scores at least thirteen by her metric of <laughs> sexy plus dark sarcastic humor, um, or a girl who's a sixteen. Yeah, I'm sure Alec was like a twenty on that. He must, he metric. must have been. Uh, the the thing is, like, the funny thing about this is, in classic Imp fashion. We know she's joking about the kidnap them and store them in her headquarters part. But like, I think there's some truth to the first part, right? Because 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 we know that her and Alec were a thing and we know that Alec was a, a kind of skinny guy who had a dark sense of humor. Like we know that that that's accurate. And yeah. I, I really like that. I think I think this is this window. We're, we're getting a lot of kind of windows into imp in this early part of the chapter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, there's actually so many secondary characters who are being highlighted that I that we don't have time to talk about all of them in the detail I would it, like. But yeah, there's there's a crazy. lot of focus on Imp here. We're in the middle of a battle and yet we still have time to really dive into these side characters. And right. Backstories like here specifically, like we, we, we realize that we really don't know the story behind like why the heartbroken are with Imp or why Imp is with the heartbroken, however you want yeah. to phrase that. This is this chapter is actually the most detailed we've got at this point she says i didn't go looking for you i went after heartbreaker and then when i'm making sure he's well and truly dead there's these kids around like dad's dead okay i'm going to watch cartoons yeah um and which like she's probably exaggerating a little bit for humor's sake but you can kind of imagine that that's kind of exactly what happened yeah i mean she is exaggerating a little bit but they basically uh completely agree with the exaggeration they're like right. screw you like we we fought to get the right to watch those <laughs> cartoons we're not going to let a little thing like our father's death ruin that yeah and, and they hated him too i think yeah, oh yeah yeah they yeah. hated him well and it's like like i it never went right right out and said this but taking care of the kids was always about honoring uh regent right yeah like, but yeah i think i think he's seeing actually how the situation kind of played out here like there's this dead guy and the kids are just watching cartoons and they and uh, i think samuel i think it's the one that points out that like all the women were just screaming during uh -huh. the cartoons um the women being like the mothers i guess right. they were just like screaming uncontrollably during all the cartoons um so like you can imagine imp in the situation where she's just killed heartbreaker uh there's kids just casually watching cartoons. The women that are supposed to be taking care of these kids are like losing their shit, understandably, because this guy's just died. And she's like, they're not going to take care of these kids. What the hell am I going to do? And and she she couldn't leave them and not an option, she says. It makes uh, uh, it's really great, actually, to imagine that that was the situation, because 
Imp has had this whole thing where like no one took care of her, right? Yeah. She, she was ignored and ignored to the point that that became her power. Um, and yeah, like she's not going to let the same thing happen to these kids. She's going to take care of them. Yep. It's beautiful. It, it, it brings just a little bit more texture to that central idea of, of course, it was, you know, to honor Alec, which, yes, true. Yeah. But there's, yeah, there's more, it's more complicated than that. And yeah. I like that. So as they begin to argue about why these thralls are here, Tristan is being unusually forceful, even for Tristan, I would say, in asserting his feelings about why this gaggle of thralls is here. Imp thinks the innocents are being used as a wave of human shields mixed in with teacher's goons. Um, I was a little curious about your, like, your unusually forceful. I I thought it was pretty standard Tristan, like, just stubborn Tristan forcefulness but yeah I mean I guess you're maybe reading into that he's like maybe a little more agitated because of the general parent shittiness that he just had to deal with yeah I think that just I think that everything has been going poorly for him recently and I just read him as being in just a really bad mood um yeah and and that it's not that he's just like like normally when he's being normally when he's behaving in this kind of head buddy way I read it as him being like, oh, well, I, I, I just think, you know, I just think we should discuss it. And, and I happen to think that I'm right, of course. And so we're going to argue <laughs> about it. And like, like sort of almost like in like an energetic place. He's coming from a place of like, of like gung ho-ness. Here he's coming from a place of pissed offness and, and I, I, and kind of just like wanting to argue. Yeah. That's my, that's my like model of Tristan right now. I guess I could see that. The thing that I, I like most about this, though, is that Victoria is like, you know, I'm not even annoyed by this. I need this sometimes. I need someone who's going to push back against me to help me think through the stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And and maybe I'm wrong about my my read. I, I think that's it's a cool thing we've mentioned a few times re- recently is this idea that, like, it's not even anything in the word choice here. It's it's just the fact that we know Tristan th- right. th- that, that makes me say that or, or like yeah. my, my model of who Tristan is would be angry and and maybe taking it out on people i don't know yeah yeah okay um <laughs> i winced inwardly at the 100 percent tattletale had never been one to give any guarantees and hearing one from imp made me suspicious oh my god victoria <laughs> see it's funny because victoria does that all the time all we talked time. about that before We've, like 100 percent. yes 100 like, percent. she does it all the time she, she th- that's her go-to aphorism <laughs> That's, that's, yeah, I mean, Wildwood did this on purpose. This is hilarious yes, to me. Yes, I, I yes. love. I, I laughed at this. I did too. Yeah. Um, so eventually, Samuel fingers one of the thralls as being more cognizant than the others. And that thrall tries to run. Uh, but when cornered, he begs them not to seal off the area because the people will die without access to water and medical care. Victoria makes the shocking choice to deny people showers. And then they uh, seal off the area. Yeah. And this is so this is one of those moments where the book is introducing this thing to me and I literally don't know how to feel about it. Right. Like on the one hand, as we'll see in a moment, every single one of these people can be a threat. They're a word away from being a serious threat to them. On the other hand, they're mind controlled people who have no will of their own and and just saying, sorry, you don't get food for however long it (laughs) takes us to be down here done with this whole thing doesn't make me feel great and like i'm not saying that this was a wrong bad evil decision i'm just saying like like it's just it introduces this element and it just like i don't know how to feel about it right like i i I, it makes me feel icky but also i get it 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that kind of introduced the yuckiness of the whole thing. Like, it's it's not this, like this this arcs, in my opinion, is like a sequence of situations where you're not supposed to feel like it's really heroic. Like, yeah. like what? Like they're not. They're what is heroic about this, right? Like, yeah, okay, you're fighting teacher because teacher wants to take over the world. You think. First of all, you don't even really know that, but yeah, I mean, okay, we know that because we're the reader. Yeah. Um, and well, he's doing all this manipulation. He's, stuff. he's doing all I the mean, manipulation he's... stuff, but but then you're killing a bunch of what are, as far as you know, innocent people who are just being mind controlled. Like they they signed up to work for him, but they didn't sign up to be used as soldiers. Well, you know, not, it, not it, even it, all of them signed up to work for him because there's heavy implication that even when people say no, yeah, they're mind controlled into saying yes. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah i mean it's just like it's just like the casual like you can live for months without food <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm just like i just you're right it's just like uh yeah yay <laughs> well like, i mean yeah it just gets worse though like this is just where i, I do think wild is gradually introducing more and more of these kind of unheroic elements right yeah and, and i mean i think if that's what we should say is is i, I don't think the book is like i don't think the book is wanting me to feel great about this. Mm-hmm. I think the book wants me to kind of read this and go yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and have, and have a tough time with it. I think that's the goal of this thing is that, that we're kind of supposed to feel a little uncomfortable about this whole thing. Uh-huh. Maybe see the necessity. Yes, but I love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you start to suspect even that part of teacher's goal here is to like break them down mentally. Right. Like, like right. that's one of the, he's putting them in a sequence of situations where, they're just being worn down before they even get to the fight. Right, yeah. So anyway, ultimately a few powered thralls get woken up, including one guy who sucks people up into himself to become bigger and stronger. Um, I love that as he gets bigger, his eyes start to face opposite directions. <laughs> yeah. Like, so he's not just getting bigger and turning into like a giant. He's turning freaky as he gets bigger. It's great. Oh, what a power, right? Yeah. It's so like, and even like anything that's flesh, like he runs by dinner tables and if there's meat on it, he sucks that up too. <laughs> It's so horrifying and wonderful. I really like it. Yeah. I, and and I love how the text really emphasizes that just by the nature of this power, like the simple act of touching someone and you're immediately absorbed, like it, it takes so many of our capes off the table. She almost lists it like, well, I can't do anything. Sveta can't do anything. Right. All these people can't do anything just because the nature of this power. So like our point of view character is kind of forced to sit back and watch everyone else handle this. Yeah, right. They just have to avoid him. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And just in case we weren't taking the whole Juliet Roman thing seriously, Juliet refrains from helping in a situation that puts Roman at risk. Like she's basically trying to get him killed. Yeah. And, and in our haste, uh, I say haste an hour and 45 <laughs> minutes into the podcast in our haste to cover these chapters, we did kind of gloss over that Roman and Juliet beat um, that where they're only here and helping so they can compete against each other on how many dudes they can take down. It's kind of like a Gimli Legolas thing. Only the dwarf and elf super hate each other and legitimately want each other to die. Uh-huh. Um, and, and like, like you were talking about earlier, like this is fairly funny th- when it's first introduced and throughout most of the early parts of it and then you're at this moment where like not only is julia not helping but she's like i'm sorry my power won't work on him i can't freeze him so he'll die here and it's like you realize that like yeah it's like like you expect from the heartbroken like this kind of funny sharp barbs at each other but you're really seeing the seriousness and the sharpness of this barb here yeah yeah because i mean i i don't think she's joking (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I don't think she is either. It's uh, it's messed up. Yeah. So then they take him down. They kind of beat him down enough that he he, he says he popped, becoming a pile of naked people and shredded <laughs> chicken dinners. I, I ate chicken for dinner, so <laughs> this is gross. It's great. This is gross. So one thing I think we need to talk about here is that one of the immediate interpretations of what happened here was love lost screams at the doctor right as he's about to say a couple words she stops him mid-word and then people wake up and both victoria and as we'll see here precipice think and probably some other people do think that it was love lost that activated these people her scream woke them up from the stupor and it's her fault they attacked and and precipice is like hey try to do better next time and we quickly learn that no, this was the word he said was enough to activate some of these people and it had nothing to do with love lost. And I really like this because like, not only do I like that we put this in the story that we're like introducing love lost in this very kind of tense relationship with everyone where they like immediately assume the worst about what she did. Um, but that precipice is the one to bring this up because these two have like a very complicated background and we're in this kind of awkward situation where like, I think she's realized that she was tricked into hating this kid but also she probably still doesn't like super like him either and it's like this really awkward kind of situation and victoria thought the same thing right victoria's our point of view character we see through her that her initial thought is that uh love lost scream was not controlled enough and it's what woke up the other people so it could have been victoria to bring this up to her but it's not it's rain and and i love i love that yeah right i mean i I think that she, Rain still did the stuff that he did, but she's gained a bit of perspective on it and realize, right. you know, like realizes the, the situation he was in, realizes what he's done since then. Um, like you said, I don't think she's anywhere close to forgiving him. But yeah, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We're we're creating and maintaining this background tension between these two characters, where you're not really sure where they stand exactly. You're you're, you're testing it. You're pushing on it. it. It's great. Yeah, yeah. So they leave a great number of the thralls chastity slapped, pretty much anybody who they suspect of being a cape. Um, and the text kind of reminds us of the threat of the presence of the overseer in the background. Oh, yeah, that that lady. Forgot mm-hmm. about her. I, I do really enjoy the details of how they're picking the ones to get slapped, though. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like really sharp attention to detail stuff. Like, uh, that one has too much muscle. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, that one has a tan that could be sunglasses or could be a mask. Slap them. <laughs> it's like like, i mean it's smart but it's also like hmm this kid's been working out too much probably okay (laughs) slap the shit out of him yeah i mean speaking of attention to detail and speaking of that love loss beat that we just had i like that she was actually right because she's the detective like we know that she notices way more stuff than most people right yeah Um, yeah I i mean probably even more than victoria like this is kind of her whole thing you know yeah um it's like her her on her character sheet she would have way more points in like just the ability to notice shit. I agree. So instead, so, um, uh, this, this interaction here, uh, <laughs> imp, <laughs> instead of a middle-aged doctor woman who you could sort of respect for trying to do things right, we have a terminally ugly ingrown taint hair in an ugly sweater. <laughs> you're being too kind to Dr. Mother. Sveta said she was a monster. I'm not going to say you're wrong. Imp replied, but, but I just, I just love the, like, cause, cause you can totally understand both people's position here. And what's funny is yeah. they like, and I don't know if this is meant to serve explicitly as a reminder, but like these two characters did invade the, this, is it the same base? Is it the same cauldron base together? 
Or is yeah, this I mean, a different it, base? It's a, it's the same base, but it's been like it's been rebuilt, custodian to be different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just interesting. These these last time these two people were with Doctor Mother. Yeah, true. So I don't know. I, I don't know if it's, if it's an explicit reminder. You know, they're in this. They're these two characters basically walking the same path, talking about the woman who's fed to murder last time they were here. Yeah, yeah arguing think, about whether that was good or bad. Yep, yep. We're, I mean, we're we're doing some stuff, right? Because yeah. we, I mean, we have the the threat of the number boy in the background. Yeah. Um, we have, and, and this is another reminder of it. And it, it tortures me that we didn't get to hear what Ip's butt was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. Yep. Um, okay. So there's a, then a dangerous wall rippling attack that washes down the hallway, disrupting the team's organization and forcing them to scramble to avoid being, being shredded. The team's fast movers are forced to react quickly uh, and they're almost uh, suckered into a situation where the guy at the, at the end of the hall is able to use the hidden full capability of his power by creating a wall of death and just killing everyone. Yeah, it's basically exactly like that Resident Evil movie. Only the team just like punches a furrow into the ceiling to jump over it. Like yeah. it's just like she Victoria just like goes up into the ceiling and says, nope, creating a new path. And everyone just follows her through it. I am not familiar with this Resident Evil movie, but uh, hmm. well, but okay, that's because you don't watch bad movies. It's yeah, your first mistake. That's true. Um, I, I do like th- this. Is a moment that we do see the Victoria that's kind of laid back and let other people do stuff. Kind of takes charge here, right? Like she recognizes this is a situation in which her power grants her an advantage, and so she flies ahead and like flies towards this guy immediately. Her and her little—I think she calls it her little mover squad—but uh, she kind of heads heads it up so yeah. i think we're seeing her kind of transition into taking charge again which i think mm-hmm. matches up because as soon as they get back to the rest of the group after this she's like okay i'm going ahead yeah and she just takes off yeah 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 that's 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 true that's one thing that surprised me and it actually confused me because i was i was when i read these chapters for the first time i'm just I'm going fast because I just want to know what happens. And I was actually like, who are these people who she comes across? Is this people who she was somehow with that I didn't notice? That's how dumb I was. I did, wow, I, like it, it took me a minute to realize like, oh, this is the first wave. Um, anyway. Yeah. Actually, no. That, that What I actually thought was this was a different uh, t- part of her. Uh, so, so there's the nine teams, right? I thought this was like three of the other teams that she came in with. But no, it's it's the, it's the first wave. Yes. Um, so Victoria flies to the gallery, which is kind of this, the, the Bay Area that we were familiarized with in Overseer's Interlude. She's ahead of the rest of the group. This is this is the Decagon. It's a pitched battle. There's dozens, maybe hundreds of thralls and uncounted good guy capes battling in this wide open space. Victoria is shot down by somebody with enhanced accuracy and then bailed out by a bulk of the wardens. She joins their formation, which is coordinated by a mysterious force field cape with cool eyes. Ooh. Pretty, pretty violent battle, though. People are getting jacked right and left. Yeah. Um, I, like, she gets shot. Like, she gets hit. Like, her armor on her chest is what saves her. Here. Yeah. <laughs> like, she gets shot. Like, and she sa- I think she says she might have broken ribs because of the force of the, the blast. Like, she's hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, she kind of joins up with these people and joins this formation and just going around killing people and and this is this is i think the moment that you were talking about earlier where the, the things really shift where things really ramp up in tension um this is this is a war zone and these are warriors and they're killing people like victoria tosses up the filing cabinet blindly trying to get stopped from shooting and it's bulk i think who's the one that hits it to where it lands definitely on top of the guy right right 
and totally. that guy's dead. There was more blood visible around the filing cabinet than I could see gunmen. <laughs> so yeah. like, she, there's not even a person there anymore. It's just blood. That yeah. guy's dead. There, they, like we said, they're war-hardened capes. The, these are not street law enforcement teams. These are warriors. These are soldiers. They were called in when they are called in to do something. They're called in to eliminate the threat. They're they're not going to hold back. They're going to get in there. They're going to eliminate the threat, and that's what they're doing. Right. And they've been fighting here for like hours, right? Like three yeah. hours. Yeah, hours. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Victoria like immediately takes a little bit of a liking to him mm-hmm. to uh, to uh, to bulk a mm-hmm. little at least because like she compliments his costume and his hair. <laughs> And then uh, she joins the squadron up immediately and like kind of appreciates the well-organized machine of, of it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. She, she enjoys being part of this flyer group, I think. Yeah. And speaking of which, I mean, she very quickly slips into this weird mental state of like hyper-focused lucidity as she continues to fight as part of the flyer squad. She's really kind of grooving with it. Yeah, it's like she's like these moments where she's falling into rhythms. Like mm-hmm. she says something feels off about this. She can't put her finger on it. Something's weird and off, but she doesn't know what. But she's just out there doing her thing. And she, I think she describes it as dreamlike a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then later she she calls it nostalgic. And of course, we find out why at the very end of this chapter. Yeah, because they fly the, the basically the flyer group flies her back to her team as her as her team gradually arrives and Victoria cops that the fallen teleporter dude might be here somewhere. I completely forgot about that guy until the book reminded me of that whole, that whole, I remember the whole thing where more and more fallen people kept showing up uh, and she thought that there was a teleporter. That's really, it's a great callback. Yeah. And then it says, my eyes settled on the culprit, the force field cape, the feeling crystallized as I caught her looking back at me with those eerie eyes and Sarah. And here's, Second part of our double bow, and yep. Sarah, she and of back. course playing with language using yeah, the word crystal. Yeah. Great, so, yep, okay. It's really great. We got to move awesome. on. Yep, we got to move on. Fifteen dot three. Um, my voice is starting to go. It's not a good sign. <laughs> um, we used to do three-hour episodes. I don't used, know if you remember this. I, I I think I'm I think I have a sore throat. But anyway, there's so many new capes introduced here in this thing. The heroes are being pinned down by heavy fire. They send some of the younger capes to escort the injured back the way Victoria's team came through. Um, but the previous people they just sent that way seem to have disappeared. So you have to wonder if picking people off as they're sent to retreat isn't like part of teacher's plan here. Yeah, probably. And there's this really horrifying moment when one of the capes prong like just suggests that they've all been annihilated. Yeah. Like he uses the word annihilated. annihilated yeah. Um, and like Capricorn in in all his heroics like tries to offer another outcome like well we didn't check like all the side paths we just went like the main way so they could they could be in an office somewhere but not looking good yeah yeah um i i don't i don't think they're just hiding in an office somewhere let me (laughs) me say that so okay i I have a question for you here because the opening of this chapter was really disorienting to me and, and I think maybe it's because I read all four of these chapters back to back to back to back um, on on Saturday but we cut hard from Victoria realizing that she's looking at her dead aunt to break through talking with some brand new capes that we had never met before and it's like an agonizingly long amount of time before Victoria Victoria mentioned Sarah to someone else and I was just like I was just like how what you just it's just, she was dead and now she's not dead and you're just not saying it. it drove me crazy. And and maybe it was just because like maybe if it was if there was four days between these chapters, like most people got 
it wouldn't have felt so jarring to me. But am I, was that, is that just a me thing or did you feel that way? I definitely thought that the chapter would have immediately picked up with her reacting more to that. But it didn't bother me a whole lot because I just figured like, okay, well, she's literally in a battle. It's chaotic as shit. It's it's understandable that she could be distracted from yeah. that really weird thing that she just saw. Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely the reason. You're right. But I was just like, but, yeah. but just and, zombie. And, There's a and, zombie. Right? And, and, and I feel like she's also not entirely sure. Like she's she, she says she thinks something like uh, the woman who bore m- more than a passing resemblance to my aunt um, which, which is kind of her, like, in a circumlocutious, is that the word? Way. Sure. Um, say, like, saying, like, I kind of do think it's her, but can't be, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's um, fair. Uh, this is speed here where Tandem is talking to Capricorn, and I, I definitely felt like I was missing something. Um, he's saying that Tandem saying can get past bars. Uh, Tristan says, I figured, but you have to get your team past them, too. What a shame we haven't talked. I, yeah. And I was like, what's, uh, what's going on here? I feel like I just missed something. Yeah, well, they're they're both K-70s. Okay. So um, I think that's just a general, like, we got to talk about this stuff. We're like, we're one of the few people in the world that both know what this experience is kind of like. Um, so I think that's, I think that's what we're, and I don't know, like, I don't know if we knew that. I mean, we probably, like, he was tandem was probably mentioned one off i know specifically later in this chapter they very specifically say tandem a k70 but i think it's after this interaction um yeah i don't remember I, it but uh yeah, yeah I'm, I'm i think my memory is not working too well <laughs> i anyway, mean I, yeah. I definitely i definitely was as confused as you okay. like on my first read through but okay. then but then i remember later in the chapter victoria points out that tandem is a k70 as tandem's doing their thing Gotcha. Cool. Uh, a teleporter named Tailgate is either shell-shocked or in some kind of power fugue, and Victoria has to help coach her through it. Uh, Gong goes out of his way to mention that Tailgate is a cauldron cape when Victoria is kind of trying to, like, be like, go easy on her. This feels like one of those things that matters in a way that's going to resonate with other things in the chapter, but I wasn't I wasn't sure how to plug it in. Yeah, personally. well, I mean, uh, to me, I mean, there's this this moment where Victoria, like, immediately puts on, like, her scholar hat. Um, and, and recognizes what ca- type of cape tailgate is and what that means about her trigger event and why Gong might be approaching, um, coaching her in a wrong way. Uh, but then it's like, she's a cauldron cape. So it's kind of like, well, she's like, well, see a breaker and a mover a trigger like this. So that's probably why she's, and, and he's just like, well, no, she drank a vial. It's different. And Victoria kind of like, doesn't know what to do with that. Yeah. Cause she's like, She's like, yeah, I mean, like cauldron capes are this big, big hole in my cape knowledge. Like, it's something I don't quite understand. And and I think it's just like it's kind of it's it upsets her a little bit, like not like she doesn't get like mad or anything, but it just kind of throws her off her game. Like she like I think I think the thing that is so obvious to me is that Victoria's like coaching of tailgate works in a way that gongs wasn't. Yeah. So she, she does help tailgate, but she kind of goes like she's very confident in her knowledge of capes and she comes in and like lays it all out in a very matter of fact way. And Gong is just like, well, she's a collagen cape. So I don't think it really works that way. She didn't trigger like a normal person does. It's like, Oh yeah. Huh? Okay. But I mean, that's true. But we, we know that cauldron capes still have like their power just kind of turns whatever's going on in their life into, 
their quote unquote trauma right. that it's going to torture them with. Absolutely. But I don't think I don't think she knows that she doesn't. Yeah, you're right. I mean, basically, I'm just like, I'm just like, what is the what is the higher level meaning of this being mentioned here? And I feel like it's going to become more obvious later. But I, I think I we're in we're in Cauldron HQ. I think yeah. we're doing a lot of Cauldron specific. I think stuff. so. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, so Victoria spins a paragraph on this elaborate metaphor comparing the attack and its failure to a botched surgery. And I, yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's some, there's definitely some Amy stuff floating around in her brain yeah, it's right like now. A, it's like an Amy surgery. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that the reason she goes for that metaphor is because part of her is still back in that room with Amy. Yeah, totally. I, I, I immediately thought that, yeah. Then, then, then she finally mentions having seen Aunt Sarah. Finally. Yeah. And <laughs> I just love the, Valkyrie's always tried to keep people from seeing what she does with anyone they might know. What? Focus, Gong said. Wait, I told him. Then to Prong, what? <laughs> Fuck, he said. The thing that I love about this is there's no blocking in this text, right? There's no kind of indication of what any of these characters are doing but i just in my head see like they're standing on opposite sides of victoria right and she like she's talking to to prong and like gong gong is over to her left in in my head saying focus and she like turns to him and goes wait and then turns back and goes what and i just like it's, it's so visual like just the the, the yeah. language is enough to paint the scene for you i, I love it really much Really yeah. much. I love yeah. it a whole bunch. Um, and and so this this part of the text does kind of tell us a little bit more about what Valkyrie's doing here. Uh, that they don't always come out right. That there's some wrong stuff with them, either mentally or physically. And she's fixing them herself or getting help to fix them, which has a lot of implications to some of our our bio tinkers and uh, and biological power people, um, which are scary. Uh, and. I love that like Victoria is freaking the fuck out. Like she's losing her mind because this is yeah. crazy. But Gong and Prong are just kind of like super casual about it. It's like, yeah, I don't I mean, we, she she knows what she's doing. Don't worry yeah. about it. Like she's doing her thing. We trust her. Don't don't ask too many questions. Yeah. Uh, I think it helps establish them as guys that like have seen some shit like they've seen a lot of crazy shit. And so this is just kind of old hat to them at this point. Yeah, it seems like Valkyrie has earned the trust of of the basically all of the capes who went to war. Yeah, it's like she, she knows what she's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, Gong and Prong are teammates. That's great. Um, <laughs> and, and if we have to mention here, I almost just forgot to mention it because it was one of those things where I felt like we already talked about it. But no, that was just everyone in the Reddit and the Discord talking about it, the fact that I kind of feel like we're going to see Gru. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, arc. like, well, I mean, in, in, as in two chapters, we've seen two dead people that are now alive and here that have important interactions with some of our characters. So I think it's not too crazy to think that that might happen. Right. Um, I mean, not, I mean, yeah, we saw those two and then, We've highlighted number lad, dead person. Yeah. Well, no, he's not a dead person. He's a clone no. of a live person, which yeah. is which is weird, actually. Uh, but then, of course, Ashley has been here the whole time. Mm -hmm. Dead person. Dead person. So, um, yeah, cool. So Tailgate's power creates what look like force fields, but what are actually fields that uh, fucking disintegrate <laughs> you and then probably put you back together correctly somewhere further along the length of the field. Uh, I don't blame Vicky for avoiding it, especially in the state of mind that she's in. Yeah, I've seen the fly. I know how this shit works. Yeah. Um, good call, Victoria. For all we know, there's like a copy of her 
drowning in a tank under a stage somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it made perfect sense to me that she's like this. This definitely would fall under her like aversion to bio tankers or, 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 or um, bio capes. Right. It's like yeah. you're you're taking me apart and putting me back together. No, thank you. Not again. Yeah. Yeah. So we're glossing over a lot of the action here, Matt, but I just wanted to take a, a brief moment and highlight how badass Rain is being in this fight. Because everyone's fighting in hand-to-hand combat, like it's it's war, and there's this moment where Rain appeared and headbutted someone in the same instant, grabbed their gun with both hands, and had his smaller tinker hand reach down to pull out something out of the bottom of the weapon. It's badass. Yeah, yeah he's, go. Done, he's done a lot of cool stuff. Like he'll he'll have his silver blades and like someone will swing something at him and he'll just like hit the thing that they're swinging so that it hits him, but then it breaks and doesn't hurt him. And like, yeah, kind of clever stuff like that. It's awesome. Yeah. Job brain. So as this squad strikes out to take the fight to the thralls, Victoria slips away to find the fallen teleporter. Yeah. And, and she divides the area into groups, A, B, C, and, and later D, which is like a classic Victoria move, but it's also like a very helpful writer tactic because this is a massive fight with many teams and many entrances and exits to this big room. And there are so many characters and I got a little confused. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad Victoria helpfully just segments the population for us. Yeah, super, super helpful to have these really analytical combat oriented yes, protagonists. Yes. Um, I just just this writing here. The ghost of the woman who had read bedtime stories to me when I was little and she was visiting, who had given me baths, who had taught me to fly smart who had given me the first four adults book I had truly loved, brought lasers down on their heads, sniping wherever defenses were missing. Yeah, I love this. Um, I think this is really important because like her, her reactions here are so great because this is not, this is absolutely how someone would react if an important person to them that they lost was just suddenly not dead. They would be reeling. Right. Yeah. Um, but I also think like, this is really important to what the arc is doing because this is an arc called dying. And as we said, like we're seeing a lot of dead people too, in this very chapter, we're going to see, um, they're not dead anymore. What does this mean? What are we doing with this? And, And I think that remains to be seen, but what, is so important to all of this is the relationship that exists between these two people. We're about to see this in, in, in again here in, in a minute. And we know the relationship they have with Tristan and Byron. Um, but we don't like the relationship between Victoria and Sarah. Like we know kind of tangentially that it was a pretty good one, but I love how here and a little bit later in the story, the book is really in reinforcing just how important this was, how, important aunt sarah was to victoria how important of a person like she the, the gave me the first four adult book i i truly loved who who had helped raise me um later we see that every time she went to old brockton bay she took a stop to lay lay flowers for her like this is a person who was hugely important to her life and i think the book in, in order to really sell what's going on with victoria now the book needs to firmly establish in us just or, or remind us just how important this relationship was. Um, and, and that's, we kind of see what it's doing here. Yeah. Right. Cause it's easy to forget. I mean, I, I think I, I forgot like, Oh yeah, she was part of their team. Like she, she was a teammate of Victoria's. They were very close. She's not one of those aunts that you see twice a year, you know, or, or <laughs> once every two years, you know, she was, she was a very much in her life person who she lost and it was very painful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah. So, uh, and Sarah's flying squad supports Victoria in identifying and taking down the teleporter. This changes the tone of the fight, but not necessarily for the better, 
as the teleporter has dumped in hundreds of people as his last action. So now it's like fighting a swarm, which Victoria likens to fighting Crusader or a skitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it, I, I love I love that reference. I love I love every time we reference good old Taylor. It makes me smile. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we kind of see here that the fight switches into another gear again, like it, it's getting even more brutal. There's so many more people now. There's hundreds of people they're fighting and it's getting more and more brutal. And that Sveta we see is a person who earlier in the chapters yelled at everyone to to go easy on the thralls because they don't know what they're doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And now here we see her as the person whose tendrils were cut where they, they they have saw teeth and they're cutting and running along flesh in some areas and grabbing. Otherwise, the two combined were nasty to cut someone's arm and pull on that skin. Um, this is getting like really, really intense. And I'm not sitting here and argue. I'm not going to say like Sveta is bad. What you're doing is bad. But like we're seeing our street level, you know, hero capes pulled into a war and they're starting to adjust to the war zone and become more and more brutal. Yeah. Yeah, they're being broken down. They're being pushed until they they really it's a matter of survival. They have no other option and and then it becomes normalized and that's that's really bad, right? That's sad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. It is sad. Yeah. So Victoria helps support Stonewall when his power is knocked out by whatever trump they have uh and Aunt Sarah lands to help. She looks serious and haunted like on the day Leviathan attacked. <laughs> Um, as the lights go out, uh, as the light dies, she asks, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I was a little bit too proud of myself there, wasn't I? Yeah, you, it was a uh, lot of emphasis. Uh-huh. She she asks what Sarah calls herself, and, and she answers Sarah and, and Photon when pressed. Uh, photon, light, darkness, just lights just died, it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I, I really, really like this, and I like, now that we've established how important Sarah is to Victoria immediately in the text i think it really makes the point land home where we know sarah looks at her recognizes her but there's no excitement to see her there's no happy reunion here there's no hug she doesn't ask about her she doesn't ask how she's doing she doesn't ask about her daughter she's short and curt this is not sarah this is not aunt sarah this is this is a person who maybe will someday be aunt sarah as she says herself someday i will be lady photon i'm only photon right now uh, but not today and that's really that's really traumatizing for Victoria. Like, can you imagine like you've lost a person that you love, a person that's so important to you, and then suddenly they're there in front of you again, but they're off. Yeah. It's basically Pet Cemetery. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's 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 way more disturbing, right? Like it, it it would already be weird if it was like, yeah, I'm I'm your aunt. Here I am. Like that would already be weird. But this is like a weird, creepy Halloween version of her, yeah. 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 Not not pleasant. Um so the heroes retreat into a hallway. Byron makes some water and starts to distribute it to the heroes. He's being so useful. I love yeah. him. Um, we, we skipped over the parts where he was like, Victoria noted that he was like kicking ass in hand-to-hand combat. Like he wasn't yeah. being a stand back kind of uh, range attacker. He was like uh, up in it. That's like, right. you go Byron. Yeah. Go. I thought that that was another cool thing where he's, he's like beating people and then he'll like use a, a water you know, spray strategically to catch them off balance or, or, yeah. or when they're not paying attention. It's really great. I love it. Yeah. Um, and then there's just a 
bunch of great character interactions here at the end. I, I didn't. I know the script looks like I just became completely lazy and started cutting and pasting. It's just a bunch of quotes. It's just the a last bunch of two quotes. Pages of the script. Well, are just a it, bunch of it's quotes. just that like the whole end of this chapter is just solid, awesome character interactions. Yeah, like, yeah. like Swan Song is being her typical like self, and and she she basically says like to compliment me risks stating the obvious. Uh, <laughs> belaboring yeah, she, the obvious. Complimenting oh, me risks belaboring the obvious. Wow, Tristan said. You did okay, Swan, I said. <laughs> Victoria's response there is so perfect. It's I great. It. And, and it, it so emphasizes much. like their friendship because yeah. Swan Song like takes it well, right? Right. It's great. Like, yeah, it's it's them kind of the playful, the playful like digging at each other. Unlike the Juliet Roman, not playful. I literally hate you digging. Yeah, right. And then we have we have the we Scott, we have the third beat of a three beat that has been that was set up in Glowworm. That was reemphasized in uh, Tristan's interlude, and is finally here. Mm-hmm. Hey, Azucar, Tristan said. He was still making bottles. The group around him had shifted. I looked up. Tristan was paying attention to a girl in a cat mask, ears sweeping back along the sides of the head, gauntlets on. Guess who's back? Yep. You look good, Tristan said. I feel good, she said. Nine six ten five. You changed it. Dying necessitates change, she said, looking down the hall in the direction of the fighting. What we were supposed to fight past and through, they'd be setting up. But you'd know that, wouldn't you? False deaths, impermanent deaths. Oh boy, let's talk about this for a while, Matt. So we have for Kate here, um, Victoria refers to her as she, and we see here that her number scale um, nine, six, ten, five. That I, th- I believe that was how she's doing physically, how she's doing mentally, um, her girlness, and then the last one was a tiebreaker about her memory of her her lemon candy, right? So she's a ten on her girlness. So uh, we haven't seen if she's changed her pronoun, but Victoria, who doesn't know, like genders her right. as a woman. Um, it's, I mean, it's cool to see her back, but th- this is really yeah. fascinating, right? Th- I mean, this is like we see here that she's more along than uh, Sarah is. Um, she She's told specifically the, the normal rules of the flock don't apply to me because I'm more along. I've gone I've gone further. I'm I'm more myself, she says. Um, yeah. But is she <laughs> like that's that's the fascinating thing about this, right? Um, yeah, I I mean, there the the people who come back from the dead like we've seen that we've seen that Ashley has been able to come back and make a life for herself maybe she's not 100% Ashley Stillens right but, but i mean this is this is a different yeah. kind of coming back it, from the it, dead it's a different it's a different thing but i think that the story is showing us like yeah she, she's almost there you know yeah. and 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 also there's the element where like when Furcate splits does she lose memory too yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, know. I think you're right that she's probably out of all of these people probably doing the best because yeah. I think, you know, die, like part of her dying was like modus operandi, right? Like that's yeah. kind of what they did. They split uh-huh. uh, and then they picked the best one. <laughs> yeah. And then I don't think we ever learned the detail of like what happened to the other ones, but they're not around anymore. So uh-huh. something happens to them. So I think that kind of transition process might be one uh, that for Kate is able to deal with more than many other people would. But yeah. I mean, th- th- this whole thing ends with this line of like Byron's like, hey, do you 
do you want a lemon drop as like the test, right? That was like, mm-hmm. that was like the tiebreaker test. Like as long as you can remember this past where I think it was her grandmother or something. I don't remember, but yeah. lemon drops had a very important historical context to her. And the tiebreaking test was, do I still recognize that? And, and they say, I'd love a lemon drop right now. But when, when asked, do you remember why they were important? Her response is don't pick apart your happiness, Capricorn, which is, which is not an answer. In fact, it's kind of an answer in the negative, right? It's like, I remember I like lemon drops. No, I don't remember why they're important to me. Um, So again, this is, and this, I don't want to get into a whole conversation of like, what is the self and who is the self? And, but this is, this is not the same for Kate on that. The most important, arguably element of their measurement, the tiebreaker element of the measurement. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think we're supposed to be uh, worried and skeptical about this whole Valkyrie's clone thing. I think, I think that's going somewhere, right? I mean, there's yeah. a reason this is called dying. There's a reason we're seeing all these dead people. This is, yeah. this is going to go somewhere uh, in, in this arc. Yeah. I mean, and uh, Victoria says that she feels that something is missing with aunt Sarah, mm-hmm. that, that something's missing and she can't quite put her finger on what it is. Yeah. And then we see a fur Kate who seems to be doing really well. And I'm very, I'm very happy for her. I'm excited for her. This is, she's, she's achieved, uh, on, on some levels, the thing she's always wanted, but that tiebreaker that's that's her lowest number. That's a five. Right. And yeah. uh, it, get, it gets you worried. Um, yeah. Um, but so we have before, to talk about her her hatred of Tristan or y- not yeah. hatred, but right. I mean, just the fact that Tristan is yet again being completely dragged and, and not not been forgiven. I mean, it's it basically seems like uh, for Kate still kind of at the same place that they were when things left off. Like, Hey man, you, uh, you're a fucking asshole. You yeah. tried to try to basically kill your, your brother. And then we had to catch you and arrest you and we charged you for murder and you're a murderer. And now you're here. Like that, that's, that's where things are with them. And yeah. it's, um, like it's, th- this is very, this is very barbed, right? Like yeah. dying necessitates changed, but you'd know that wouldn't you false deaths in permanent deaths. Um, that's a, that's a very specific dig and Tristan changes to Byron. Guess who gets a hug mm-hmm. to, to echo the interlude for Kate hugs Byron. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, this is a hug that Tristan feels experiences as if it's him, but knows it's not, um, once again. And yeah, I mean, I, I think this is definitely a through line here of exactly what we talked about earlier that, uh, other people haven't forgiven him and they're not there yet. Yeah. Um, and uh, it sucks for him. Yeah, it does. Um, and then, of course, Victoria watching this is extremely envious of it because oh, doesn't that break your heart? <laughs> yeah, because she could not get this this level of like in jokiness, even if it was a little bit of a of a imperfect in jokiness. She yeah. she didn't get anything like that with Sarah. Yeah, well, and on the Byron side, the 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 embrace, the hug, the love. Yeah, um, yeah. Like she, Sarah gave her none of that, and yeah, it's but. See that uh, just to go back, what we were talking about in the interlude, like externally, there's jealousy and envy there, but internally to these characters, it's that situation is a whole lot more messy and complicated. That's a great point because Victoria doesn't. <laughs> Victoria sure as hell doesn't know what the lemon drop means. Yeah, she. In fact, well, she says here, she's like, "What are you talking about? What's going on? I don't like. I think yeah. she just says lemon drop. What? What? Huh? Who? Right. Okay. So, so like for her, the fact that she doesn't, the fact that Furky doesn't remember what the lemon drop means is meaningless. For Byron, it's highly foreboding, you know? So, yeah, yeah. like you, I, I like that. I like that you pulled this element out that, like, everyone's looking at other people <clears throat> and seeing, like, oh, they're having such a great time. 
my life sucks. Yep. No, they're not having a great time either. <laughs> yep. All right, Scott, we did it. We did it. The chapter ends with the team agreeing to smash through the walls, going off script. All precautions in effect. He recruited some of the worst of them. All precautions in effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's about to get real. Good luck with that. Real, realer. All right, Scott. The discussion question last time was okay, we're gonna go we're gonna go through these very quickly, real quick, because we're very late. So go ahead. Talk about how parahumans has changed your perspective on things. Jay Maniac made a whole YouTube video to answer this question. It's super cool and super nice, and it made my heart warm. So go check out Jay, Ma- Jay Maniac's channel. I think it's just called Jay Maniac. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you haven't, he's got a lot of cool parahumans content on there. Yeah, actually. we've we've talked about his videos before on here, um, mm-hmm. and this is a good one. I, I I'm not saying that just because it has my face in it a whole bunch of times, but that <laughs> certainly doesn't help or doesn't hurt. Uh, uh-huh. But no, it's it's very it's very wonderful. I the the answers to this question were so heartwarming. Yeah, I, I like all, across the board. I love yeah. them all. Um, and. J Maniac taking the time to to edit a video together is, is pretty neat. So uh, I will remember to put a link to that in the comments or the, in the show notes. Uh, if it's not there, then I forgot. <laughs> it's just what I'll say. I okay. try real hard not to forget. But all right, just leaving myself open for failure there. Cool. Um, Sarah Pinkwin says that Worm rehabilitated her love of reading. Yeah, That's awesome. I, after school, it kind of crushed it down. Yeah. Yeah. Sandwich says parahumans ruined superhero hero comics for them. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, that, not, not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, Months for College says it galvanized their political radicalization. Yeah, by showing downtrodden individuals, it kind of kickstarted that for them. That yeah. was cool. Yeah, sometimes empathy is a really important tool to to getting to that kind of place. Yeah. Uh, Kitten Sharktopus said Ward <laughs> specifically made them more metacognitive and prone to categorizing their behaviors. Yeah, and I think this is a similar theme throughout a lot of these answers, right? Because Vista is best girl says it changed how they view trauma in themselves and in others. Yeah, I, I think like those, those last two are definitely true for me, too. Yeah. Uh, Death Death of the Artist says parahumans widen their appreciation for art and structure specifically and is one of the more effective challenges to utilitarianism that they've seen. I agree with that. Yeah. Ward specifically also made them more empathic uh, by forcing them to relate to the struggles of the traumatized and mentally ill. Yeah. Kausubalu says that Wildbo's use of literary techniques and skills such as three beats, timing and pacing really changed how they write their own stories. That's great to hear. Yeah, I think me too. Also. Uh, March was May said that the doof uh, media ethos of I assume the work is genius and confusion on my part means I'm not understanding something yet has had a positive impact on how they consume and relate to media. That is a wonderful thing to hear. That is so I don't think we ever like consciously set out to to come to that conclusion about how we approach art. But I'm so glad we did. And Mm -hmm. I'm so glad we were able to put words to it because and that it's affecting people. That means so much to me. Yeah, me too. Uh, Antichrist says the story drove home the idea of we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. Yeah, God, that's so true. And I do that constantly. And uh, like, I think I think one of the cool things about it being a serial is like this book has been going on for almost two years now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just like you're having these experiences as you're reading it. You keep having these experiences because it's part of your life. Reading the story is part of your daily life. And like if you're struggling with a particular thing this week and then you read a part, you're like, Oh yeah, fuck, I'm doing that thing again. Yeah. Yeah. The story is basically rubbing your face in your human psychology dog shit (laughs) until you're like, Oh yeah, Yeah. that, that is, Oh wow. Yeah. Nugget blaster 69 
says Ward has recently forced them to confront how they personally deal with trauma and to realize that they might not be doing it the mo- in the most healthy way. Hey, me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Calinero985 talks about how the story changed their understanding of what you can do with an unreliable narrator and how it shows that a character who generally does what described as factually happening can still be distorting your perception of the story. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, guys, I love all of these. I, I like this is this is exactly the why I love storytelling, the power of what a story can do for you as seen in your answers. Um, I agree with every single one of you. I, th- I think this the story, you know, reading the story, analyzing the story, being part of this community, being with you guys. I think one of my favorite parts of what of Jay Maniac's video was the part where he just says, this story is wonderful. It's great, but it would be nothing or not nothing. It would be a lot less to him without the community of people that it has drawn it has drawn together and i agree with that like that is the power of storytelling it can bring people together to discuss these things to work through these things to process these things and a community community is an important part of this book and the community around the story is as important to it as the story itself yeah yeah absolutely and and i i mean for my part i think that that these stories have made me a better person. They, they've forced me to, yeah. to see things from different perspectives. Like I can legitimately say that Ward basically challenged me. It, I was in a place in my life where I was really angry at someone and it, and we happened to be literally in the Tristan Byron chapters. And I was like, you know what? I, I'm going to forgive this person. I'm just going to, I'm just going to forgive them whether or not they deserve it. And, and it was a great decision that has paid a lot of, it is, it has been a wonderful, it is, I'm, I'm glad that I did that is what I'm trying to say. Um, so like this, and that's just one example, really, there's, there's a lot of examples of that kind of thing. So I love the story. I really love parahumans and, uh, it has uh, really made a difference in my life. Yeah. I completely agree that you are a much better person. (laughs) Thank thank you, Scott. That's really, (laughs) really nice of you to say that way. Uh, All right. (laughs) That's all we got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. Matt, you skipped the discussion question. The discussion question for this week is, what is your favorite double bow moment? Scott, do you explain what that means? I, I explained it. Basically, okay, what, what yeah. is your favorite... What is your favorite? And I think we might have asked this question. Look, guys, it's been like a million episodes. We're running out of questions. Um, what is your favorite moment in which uh, the text was textually doing something, but subtextually setting something else up? That is what a yeah. double bow is. Easy to miss the second thing. Yes. And like I mentioned a second ago, <laughs> you guys are all part of this show. So feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. And as I have not mentioned yet, you can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at mail. That's right. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all the other shows we do over at doofmedia.com. We're back, and so our shows are back. Um, Special thanks to the Deep Impact boys for holding it down for us while we were off last week. Uh, It was the only shows that were produced on the website last week, and we appreciate you guys still going at it. Yeah, um, yeah, keep up that keep, keeping up that appearance of professionalism. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, we just like, take off whenever we feel like it. They're working hard. That's exactly right. So yeah, if you like <laughs> if you like we've got Ward, if you like the Doofcast, if you like Deep Impact, 
out of you, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art and occasional costume contests, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions like this one, and our excellent Discord chat. Special thanks this week to new Bidoofs, uh, Sarah D at the $1 level, Doof Trooper Helen C at the $10 level, and Doof Warrior Shelby S at the $20 level. Wow. Thanks so Thank much, you everyone. Guys. Yeah. Thank you. Really appreciate it. We got people who donated to us during the week. We didn't do anything. So that's very kind of you. <laughs> yeah, that, that feels real good. Yeah. And as always, make sure you go over to Wild Bo's Patreon, patreon.com slash and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just being traumatized by it. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that's absolutely okay. You can instead share this trauma with everyone else. Or you can head on over to Apple Podcasts or the Stitcher. It does it too. And leave us a rating and a review. This week, our spotlight review comes from Isha Moradin, who gives us five stars and says, We've Got Worm and Deep Impact are the only reasons I have a podcast app. There are a few better uses of time than listening to the fine people of Doof discussing the various masterpieces of Wildbow. And if you have yet to experience either, then now is your chance. Thanks so much. That's yes. so nice. Thanks, Ishimor. And always good to to find another speaker of the old tongue. <sighs> You're super wheel and time shit. And Let's that's end the episode. <laughs> at, for this week's show, we'll be back next week at our normal time with our normal number of chapters to find out which dead people we're going to meet in Arc 15. Bye. Bye.